on today's show, we are getting to know Dr. Bradley Layfield. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up on any social media. It's Andre Psyche. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you are looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Patreon.com helps creators like me earn a monthly income that will be put towards podcast expenses. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors through Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There are all sorts of costs that I had no fucking idea about associated with posting podcasts, not to mention the need for equipment and production. So dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or just want to help keep the pod going, go to our Patreon. The link's in the description and your support of the Getting to Know You pod is very much appreciated. Two bucks too much? Here are three free ways to help. Get your thumbs ready. One, push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. Did that? Thank you. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on your social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go ahead, open those apps, click away if you haven't already. Thanks again. Three, go to Apple, write a review. The internet tells me this might be the most important and impactful. So thank you. Your support, dear listener, whether it's with your thumbs through our Patreon or ideally both, is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. And Dr. Layfield is running for the Delaware State House of Representatives position in the newly created District 4, Southern Delaware. He has a primary on September 13th, 2022, and he's a very busy man and has given up a lot of his time. Thank you, sir, for coming on, letting people get to know you. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, and um, as a little bit of a, and I think it'd be a cool place to start there. As a something we were just talking about is this finite amount of time, <laughs> and you are a principal. You have been a coach. Are you still on the DIAA board, or did that go away? Uh, April of 2022 was my last meeting as the chair of the DIAA. I did 10 years there, five years as chair. Um, got a lot of good work done, and I think left them in a good place moving on. But uh, learned a lot from that uh, that experience, and I think that. Kind of gives me um, a, a bit of a background for how I can best serve the fourth. Yeah, because the DIA is statewide, right? Like it's yes. the entire. Yes, it's statewide and uh, governs all interscholastic athletics for both private and public schools. And um, I can tell you during the pandemic, and we also went through uh, three or four different executive directors in a period of uh, four years during the pandemic, prior to, during, and then after um, that 
I can tell you three, four, sometimes five times a month being pulled away for, you know, half day meetings, full day meetings, some of them in person in Dover, some of them via Zoom, um, that I feel like I was able to not only guide the Delaware Interscholastic Athletic Association in a positive direction and bring a bit of normalcy in all that was abnormal in the <laughs> pandemic and also lead a school going through um, a period of abnormal with remote and hybrid learning and things that none of us ever saw coming. And, and that, I think that that really steeled my uh, ability to lead uh, and do multiple things at one time. You, you mentioned, you know, there's a finite amount of time. I think there's a, a, a distinction between time and effort, time and effort. And uh, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no person that ever, uh, ever lacks on effort. You know, I'm the first one in the building many days, uh, even before the custodians. Uh, many days I'm the last to leave. Um, and I, I, I've proven that I can do multiple things and do them well at, at the same time. You want something done, you ask someone who's busy. Yeah, get it on the calendar, right? And that was kind of what I'm going with. I really like the fact that you have this experience on a statewide level in an organization, having to compromise, having to problem solve, having to understand what a Wilmington issue is. But then you've got 2,000 kids each year, and I'll just round numbers, a new 500 every year, right? Where you get all these eclectic experiences that you hear about, that you see, you have faces to experiences. It's not just an article, it's personal. You know, and I, I love that blend of experience for someone like you to run because you have no choice but to be efficient if you're going to be successful. Yeah, you've got to. You you would not last long uh, as even a teacher, uh, let alone as an administrator or a principal, uh, if you weren't efficient and you weren't open and honest and able to uh, respond to people's needs. You know, you're, I have them for a period of four years and I pride myself on learning the names and whenever <laughs> they graduate and walk across that stage, um, it actually brings a lump to my throat. I shake each and every hand and tell those kids, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of what you've done. And, uh, and then come September, right around the corner here, here we are on the 28th of uh, August, you're going to greet about 500 uh, new ones who you've not met and you need to get to know them. In, in politics and in school, it's all about building relationships. If you can't build relationships, then you can't actually get the work done. And I'm all about building the relationships because that's where folks feel comfortable with you, coming to you with challenges, coming to you with problems and being able to solve problems. Yeah, I like it. And something I didn't realize and I was reading in, and I guess I should credit them to be nice, Delaware Lives um, magazine, DelawareLive.com. And they said that, a typical session starts around 2 p.m., which yeah, I had yeah. no idea about. And running for this position, it's not technically a full-time job. It is a part-time position as well, right? So I guess if you just want to talk a little bit about how you're planning on making that time crunch or what people could see as a time crunch, how you see it working for you. Yeah, correct. And um, the, uh, the author of that piece from Delaware Live, Charlie Meganson, was an international baccalaureate student and graduate of Sussex Central High School. I remember oh, seeing no him walk the halls and uh, hanging out in the library. He was the president of our student council. Uh, very, very smart, astute, uh, fine young man, uh, Charlie Meganson. But to get to the point, um, yet yeah, our founders did not intend on the legislature to be a full-time position. Uh, for the intent of bringing in people who are retired, who are younger, who are older, who come from a diverse uh, background. There are farmers, there are teachers, there are lawyers, there are doctors. 
Um, and and that, that's the full intent. And our legislature is in session for 45 days and 30 days are voting days. Uh, and only 15 days are committee days. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, Wednesdays are committee days. And uh, it starts at two o'clock in the afternoon. And we are an early start school at Sussex Central. So uh, we go from 7.15 until 2, uh, excuse me, 7.25 until 2.15 each and every day. So on those 30 voting days, I'm going to be missing an hour and a half, maybe two hours of work, which compared to my time on DIAA, uh, three, four, sometimes five times a month, being away for a half day, a full day, doing that work, I, I feel like I was able to steer Sussex Central in the right direction by building systems. I see part of leadership as building systems that whether I'm there each and every day, look at a manager of a restaurant. You know, I, I often go to Buffalo Wild Wings. The manager there is also a Sussex Central graduate, you know, to, to uh, decompress on the weekends. And um, just yesterday, she said, well, I'm not working. I said, well, how can it possibly function if you're not there? Um, but it does. And it, it goes the same with a school. I have an important job. I'm not going to dismiss my job and say that, I've got a team of assistant principals that can do it, and I'm just a figurehead. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm in there every day. As I said earlier, uh, you know, they're at 5 o'clock in the morning, sometimes even before that. But most of the work uh, of a principal is getting the day started, is getting the year started, and steering the ship in the right direction and trusting your teachers to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Now, there could be critical incidents, and I'm just a phone call away. I always have been. But um, as I said, there are 30 voting days in the legislature starting at 2 o'clock. Uh, the committee assignments, I reached out to our minority leader and our minority whip, and uh, they're cognizant of that. 21 of our 41 legislators have full-time employment, and depending on committee assignments, they can put you on committees that maybe meet in the evenings, maybe do not meet every Wednesday. And they're aware of that, and they want to harness my skills and my abilities to better serve the people of the fourth, uh, while also not distracting from you know, my passion, my drive, my primary goal, which is a, a, an educator. Um, there, there were two things that caught my attention there. The point of the, and I know so many people who hate the full-time politician, right? Because now you've become disconnected. You've come beholden to lobbyists and your fundraisers, it seems. That's the stereotype, how true it is. I don't know. I'm not a full-time politician, but I know there's a big disdain for them. The other thing that I'm curious about is on, say, committee days, are, are you like given, do you know if you're given documents or like reading for beforehand i'm sure there has to be some sort of prep that you're walking into committee with right yeah correct i i um you know looked back to my experience in diaa you don't show up to a meeting and then go through a waiver process for someone seeking a waiver <laughs> for eligibility and just read it and listen to them that day you have to read that stuff ahead of time and it's the same with yeah. committees and quite honestly it's the same on the voting days where right. i would certainly hope we don't have legislators showing up that day saying well tell me about this bill i'm about to vote on and it's going to impact twenty-five thousand citizens in my district yeah. and um to your point about full time i think uh in speaking with steve grossman who's very very connected with his community there in the marshtown area off of robinsonville road he said that he's worked with uh, plenty of legislators and despite which party they're in full-time legislators oftentimes look for legislation that they need to enact or create i'm the type of person that looks for less regulation less law less taxes government that's smaller and uh as far as i'm concerned i know this is not possible but if i could wave a magic wand for every new law we put on the books we wipe two out um, and, and I'm not I'm not for, you know, going out and seeking pet projects and, and pet uh, pet laws 
or regulations. I want to be responsive to the people. You got a pothole that needs filled. You got an issue with Demrec. You got an issue with Delta. Let me call the people that can solve your problems. Yeah, I, I like the, the point man mentality of let me problem solve for you. Let me not look to create new. Because it's almost like if you put someone in a position and then they have to look busy to justify the position. So if you're a full-time legislator, it's like, what else are you doing aside from trying to make laws? It's an interesting, like philosophical point. Right, and, and I don't want to discount, you know, my primary opponent, he's a very good man. And, and we've run a very positive race. And I'm not accusing him of, you know, saying he's going to come in with an agenda or look for pet projects. I just, I don't know that the whole full-time candidate shtick is necessarily um, convincing to people. I'm, I'm actually in the community. I'm connected to the community when parents and students, uh, and I'm talking about the younger generation, when they come to me, I can problem solve for them. Yeah. I'm just looking to expand that in my experience where senior citizens can come to me. They may not have kids in the community. They, they may have no idea who, who Principal Layfield is, but they'll know Bradley Layfield is a guy who can get things done. You know, that school experience to me, and it, it might be because I'm a teacher and I overvalue it. The canary in the coal mine is the wrong kind of analogy. But whenever a trend in society starts, whether it's good or bad, a problem, you see it in schools first. Like if it's a mental health issue, you're going to see it with kids first. And then it's going to like leach out into the community. If good things are happening and there's this positive energy, oh my God, all these, all these kids are volunteering out. So you're going to see it early first and then it's going to branch out. But as a principal, not only do you get to see the kids, but you're dealing with the parents. So it's like you have both ends of the spectrum. You get to see the ramifications of policy on adults and hear that. But you also get to anticipate, and I'm sure you think about what policy is going to mean to kids as they transition to adulthood. Like, I just love that that you have that perspective. It has to be unique for people running. It, it is, and it, it warms my heart, you know, aside from even running from office when I'm in you know, food line in Millsboro at Wawa or elsewhere. And I see a former student in particular, when I see a former student who spent some time in the principal's office, <laughs> um, which typically is not for good reason. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it is not. And uh, they come up and they thank me and say, I appreciate you trying to lead me in the right direction. And I was a knucklehead and I was just, you know, I was, I was a teenager and we, we make mistakes when we're teenagers and when life smacks them in the face uh, and they've got to, They've got to, you know, you know, pay bills and, and and go out and get a job. They appreciate the structure that maybe was or wasn't there necessarily from home or elsewhere. And that, um, you know, they're held accountable because that's that's what life is. We're all held accountable. Yeah. You're held accountable. I'm held accountable. And teenagers sometimes don't get that. And uh, sometimes through the discipline process, you know, it may end in a suspension or whatever the case is. And at the time. They're not happy about it. Sometimes their parents aren't happy about it. But what warms my heart the most is seeing these same people in the community where I live, where I grew up. You know, I'm a Sussex Central graduate myself uh, saying, I appreciate what you did for me. And um, you've got my full support uh, now running for office. That, that That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. I, it's funny because that's a pretty common trope or story where the knucklehead kid that was just such a pain in the butt, five, 10 years later, you're like, not only are you a functioning citizen, like you're thriving, <laughs> like you figured it out, man. And they're so grateful and almost apologetic to be like, dude, I'm so sorry I gave you a hard time. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it all the time. All right, let me go back to the day thing because I, I didn't mean to divert you with my school um, ramblings. 15 days at committee, 30 voting days, 45 total commitment of you got to be somewhere days does not seem like a huge issue to overcome, especially with the time 
that your school day starts and ends. Like that almost seems like a non-issue to me. Right. I think it's a non-issue, but I'm also not going to be Pollyannish. When you're elected, just like when you're a high school principal, it's 24-7. When folks have problems, it's about constituent services. But fortunately, uh, when elected, you have staff. You have staff that have all the right phone numbers, whether it's a Dell Dot issue or a DENREC issue or or whatever department it is. And you need to be responsive. And it, it doesn't take more than, you know, five, ten seconds to shoot a text back or send an email back saying, listen, I heard your concern. I'm on it. I'll have so-and-so get back to you. Or, you know, this is a little more complicated. I'm going to roll my sleeves up and I'm going to make some phone calls myself and I'll deal with it. And that's that's the each and every day of a high school principal. So I, I really don't see it as a distraction or trying to serve two masters uh, in, in doing so for the general public instead of, um, you know, just the students and parents I serve as a high school principal. Yeah. How how did you develop the skill? Actually, I don't even know. How long have you been principaling? <laughs> I've been, uh, it's funny, a former student, Charlie Workman, he, uh, we have an ARV program, audio, radio, visual. Uh, we do a, a, a daily um daily sometimes you, some years it's daily some years it's weekly uh, a television broadcast and uh, he was going around interviewing and he coined a phrase about 10 years ago when he was a student said uh, so uh, what are you doing today just uh, principling around <laughs> um, so when I'm principling around uh, it, it involves an awful lot you know going into classrooms seeing teachers uh, going into lunch duty uh, getting to know the kids and doing all those things and I've been principling around uh, this is my ninth year as principal. Oh, I started as an assistant principal in uh, December of 2010. I started um, I started in education. My first year in education was uh, uh, the week before 9-11, 2001. But I was actually coaching high school football as a volunteer coach two years before then. So uh, right after I got out of high school, I started giving back to the high school as a volunteer coach, went to the University of Delaware, graduated in two and a half years. Uh, talk about someone with a busy schedule. Um, I crammed four years of education and two and a half years at the University of Delaware and um, and then got back in uh, at my alma mater of Sussex Central. I taught social studies, uh, civics, U.S. history, sociology, pretty much anything in the social studies department at one point in time or another. I was an athletic director for uh, four years, uh, served as the Delaware Association of Athletic Directors uh, executive director when I stepped down as athletic director and went back in the classroom. So once again, being able to multitask and, and, and hold different jobs. And then uh, transitioned after I finished my master's into a discipline dean position, a district uh, instructional coach, assistant principal. And now, as I said, uh, I've been principal since July 1st of 2014. Good grief. Um, one of the, a saying that stuck with me is if I'm, so I'm, I'm a reading specialist. I, I'm not like, it's a weird position in a middle school. Cause you're not a teacher. You're not an admin. You're basically, I call myself as a helper. I'm like, well, what do you do? I'm like, whatever my, whatever my principal tells me to do. Right. But you can't lead until you've served. And what I heard right. there was you've had so many positions where you've had to serve other people that I feel growing into a leadership position. You understand the importance of delegation a football coach especially like a head coach can't micromanage everything they've got to have strong help in all their positions to get like i, I didn't even realize like linemen have their own coach and you're like yeah that really that's really matters did. oh did you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like that's a huge deal because the technique and just the breakdown the micro teaching can't happen at a leadership level for the most part because you're worried about the big picture so i love the fact that you've had positions and i feel like that would really help you to appreciate a support system and utilize the support system. You're not going to feel like you have to do 
every little thing, which helps you to get things done. Yeah, ultimately, you'll, you'll get burnt out if you don't uh, utilize a, a team of people. Um, <clears throat> I've always gone in the philosophy of uh, in education, and I look to the same uh, as a potential state legislator, that um, in education, there are two different types of, uh, of employees. You have teachers who have the ultimate and most significant role in educating the kids in their class every day, and everyone else is a custodian. And what do custodians do? They create the environment where teachers can teach and kids can learn. Hmm. So as a principal, as a reading specialist, as anyone else, you are creating the environment where kids can learn and teachers can teach. And how can you augment or supplement those services? Uh, for me, uh, creating leadership, giving feedback to teachers about, hey, have you considered this? Hey, have you considered that? Um, not finding fault or nitpicking and things of that nature, but exposing them to continual professional growth. That's what a leader does. And, you know, I respect what you do as a reading specialist. There are certain students who need that extra boost. And how can we provide those resources within the student day, whether it be through uh, pull-out services where you're bringing kids uh, in with you for a short period of time individually or with small groups or push-in services where you're actually in the classroom? There are two different categories, custodians and teachers. And custodians, I look at myself as a custodian of education because I am providing the environment where teachers can teach and kids can learn. Um, and I don't want to go down into a rabbit hole, but one of the reasons I'm running <clears throat> in that uh, there are so many things that come down from the Department of Education or some other group of legislators, pet projects who have good intentions, but the road to hell was paved with good intentions. Um, but have no idea how something's going to be implemented on the school level. Man. And that just doesn't, that doesn't just end in schools. People have good intentions with things with public safety. But when you talk to the police officers, the correctional officers, EMS and firefighters, how it's implemented is vastly different from the intentions of those ill-informed who, uh, who vote on some of this legislation. And that's what I'm passionate about, and that's why I'm running. That's my favorite soapbox to stand on, is the fact that you're going to have me do something as a professional but you didn't ask me how I think it should be done, which gets me so, the disrespect I feel of that makes me not want to support my leadership. It doesn't make me want to serve as hard. You know, it doesn't make me want to go that extra mile because I'm like, what's the point? You already know what you want done. I'm just, a, I'm a pawn. I'm not a back row chess piece. And I think most people want to feel like that back row skilled chess piece that like, let me, let me cook a little bit. <laughs> let me work. I'm a professional. I have a degree for a reason. So it's nice to hear you if, saying those kind of things. If you'll, if you'll indulge me, yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things that, I mean, grinds my gears, so to speak, more than anything, when it comes to legislation passed versus how it's implemented. Uh, I believe that the best place for a student to get education is in tier one instruction in the classroom uh, on a, on a daily basis. But let's face it. You're in education. I'm in education. Parents know that uh, sometimes kids have bad days and sometimes their bad days distracts from the learning of others. But we had legislation about five or six years ago, Senate, uh, Senate Bill 85, that said, all right, we're going to uh, track the number of out of school suspensions that are put in place. And then we're going to disaggregate it by the different groups, low income, race, gender, whatever the case is. And then you're going to be put on a naughty list if you have more out-of-school suspensions. And I've often said an out-of-school suspension is not the antecedent. It's not what we should be tracking. We should be tracking the behavior. 
I happened to get my doctorate from the University of Delaware, and I wrote a book on student education, uh, student discipline in education. And you know what I found? A lot of preventative strategies and the therapeutic approach and mental health counseling and all the preventative things you can do to build relationships is vastly important, but does not work if you do not have consequences. And conversely, if you just suspend kids without trying to build any relationships, that doesn't work. It takes a multifaceted approach. So now if we're going to kneecap school administrators and even more so the teachers in the classroom by saying, yeah, we're not going to out of school suspend a kid for, you know, uh, act of physical violence versus another student or even, God forbid, another educator. It kneecaps educators and drives them out of the profession. Even more so, that has more of an impact than teacher pay. So we need to be able to support our teachers and we need to be able to utilize every resource we've got. And if you've got a student who's violent, yeah, God bless them. We need to provide them some resources, but we don't need to just shove them back in the classroom where they can be violent again to another student or an educator. And um, we, we, I, in my opinion, we need to re repeal uh, Senate Bill 85 from about five or six years ago because it is causing serious disruptions throughout all of public education when administrators feel that they cannot utilize all the uh, resources they have at their disposal to deal with the most serious uh, student discipline issues. We need to restore student discipline in order for all students to learn and keep our teachers in the profession so they can feel supported. Um, yeah, that's interesting because I feel... So then how do you track it? So let me actually back up. Probably the impetus for the bill was um, unjust targeting of some sort, disproportionate targeting of, hey, the minorities are getting suspended way more than the majority of white kids. And that's not fair. So we need to advocate somehow for them. But if you're not going to track or then what would be the solution to getting discipline back? Maybe that's the better question. Yeah, I've got no problem with tracking any and all types of data that anyone does. Did, uh, does. We, we look at disproportionality when it comes to special education versus regular education versus, uh, you know, uh, gender or minority groups or different uh, ethnic backgrounds. I've got no problem with tracking the data. But in the end, if you go up and punch another student in the face, you're going to need a few days to reflect on that. And you don't need to be in the classroom and you don't need to be walking the halls. And maybe during that time, we can provide, you know, whatever resources. I've always said the, thera the therapeutic approach is not in the absence of consequences. And right now, it seems that some of our legislators who are driven by exactly what you said, um, they, they may feel that there is a disproportionality for racial minorities or whatever the case is. Um, and here's how we're going to rein it in. We're not going to suspend any kids. Well, I was a teenager once. If I knew I was going to get away with something, I'd go and do yeah. it. If I knew I was, if I knew I wasn't held accountable for attendance or being tardy every day during hunting season, my, my rear end was going to roll in late around about nine or nine 30 after a successful or unsuccessful day, you know, out in the woods. But I knew I had to be at school on time. I knew I had to uh, obey the rules because there were consequences. When I messed up at home, mom and dad had consequences. When you mess up in school, you should have consequences. And once again, not in the absence of a therapeutic approach. Let's peel back layers of the onion, find what resources the kids need, but at the same time, hold them accountable. Yeah, I, I personally never saw the, the greatness of a lack of consequences as when COVID hit. And um, I forget the article specifically or the specific quote, but Governor Carney had come out and like literally said, no child will be um, like not impeded. He had, he had, it was a phrase. And we had kids send that to us through Schoology and be like, so I don't have to do any more work. And it was like April. 
And we're like, no, dude, you got to keep showing up and like do these assignments for two more months. And they were like, deuces. Because they figured out there's no consequence for me to no longer not be here. I, so I don't have to attend. So I don't have to because COVID will not negatively impact any student, I think was the phrasing. And it yeah. was like, dude, these are 12 year olds who are smart enough to read between the lines on that. And I, I agree. Consequences has such a negative connotation, but they're also positive consequences and consequences are just boundaries. And you want everyone to have a boundary, I feel. And kids respond really well with consistent boundaries. And they respond like, like it's, they definitely know how to try to push fences and expand their boundaries their way. And if they get to, then you're having kids make decisions. And I, I don't want that. Like, I feel like part of my job is to be the adult and make decisions to help guide them, you know? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and you, you hit on a good point. That is the job of an adolescent or a teenager to push boundaries. Yeah. And our job as educators, as parents, as adults are to say, you know, here's what the boundaries are. You can try to push them. And when you go, when you step over, here's going to be the consequence. It, it may be negative. It may be redirective, whatever the case is. But, you know, that's that's our job is to show folks where that lane is, because if you if you if you get used to living a life outside the lane, eventually life will smack you in the face and teach you that uh, you can't stay out here. Yeah, hopefully. Um, so let's stay on education for a little bit, because what I'll do is I'll timestamp by segments. This way, if people want to hop around, they're able to. Um, so something for me as an educator, and I'm curious with you and your principal experience, and this is not a slight to you, but I hate administrative cost. <laughs> I feel like the teacher unit count, the average talking about metrics that might look disproportionate. I think it's like on average 16 to one class size where that's completely not realistic. I've seen pictures at central where you guys are packed. You're building right now because you're so packed. I hate the formula that doesn't allow us to have just extra classrooms. I'd rather have empty classrooms than I'd rather have too many than too few where we can build into. It. And I'd rather have classes at 15 to one. We kind of are around a lot of ours, 20, 25, even 30. And I feel it's way too high. And I'm curious, do you have any position? Do you hope to get anything done to reduce class sizes or do you have any actual or goals around class size? Well, I, I think that our funding system is antiquated and needs changing. Do I have the magic wand on saying how that's going to be done? I do not at the time, but I think I can bring that uh, experience, not only as a teacher, but also as an administrator to the table and figure out a better way. A as you said, um, a normal uh, student with no special education services or anything else, it's a 20 to one ratio. We have very, very few classes that have 20 kids or less in them. Now, if you have students who are, have more basic, intense, or complex uh, special education funding, it goes to, as you said, 16 to 1 or 8 to 1, or the most complex students, it's actually 3 to 1. Uh, that's where you have one-on-one -on -one paraprofessionals. Uh, Co-taught classes with a, a regular ed teacher, a content teacher, special ed teacher, sometimes supported with a paraprofessional to keep those ratios in check. But with normal funding is 20 to one, but most of the classes I can tell you at Sussex Central, when we, when we create the schedule in the summer, our classes are between 20, 20, 24 students max for a special education classroom, which may have a content teacher, special ed teacher, sometimes paraprofessional to meet those ratios. But everyone else is a 25 student class, a 28 student class. And it's not uncommon that those 28 student classes might creep up to 30, 31, 32. Uh, 
when you have you know a, a lot of a lot of need in a particular area. So we do our part as administrators, and not just our team at Sussex Central, but I believe every administrator to uh, keep an eye on those class sizes. So all that being said, right now the reality of what uh, what a quote unquote typical classroom looks like does not match what the funding uh, unit is like because people don't take into account that that same funding for those uh, classroom teachers also has to pay for certain things as reading specialists, yeah. interventionists, sometimes school counselors, um, mental health counselors. And, I heard some, school nurses. I'm sorry to cut you off. I even heard school nurses were a unit count, a teacher yeah, school unit. Yes, nur- school nurses are, are, are funded particularly with a certain number of students equal a school nurse. A large school like us with 2,000 students, uh, we qualify for three school nurses. Um, and then you've got career and technical education teachers where they actually derive uh, career and technical uh, vocational minutes for all the students that are receiving that skill. And that actually boosts the funding, which is a good thing. But um, do schools, I know we do, but I don't know that this is the case school-wide, do schools that generate so many minutes with career and vocational uh, technical education, do they have as many teachers employed as they're being funded for? Or in some cases, uh, schools generate a lot of units uh, through special education funding, but don't have that many special education teachers funded. So sometimes it's a shell game. And I think we need to remove the whole shell game and it needs to be a lot more cut and dry. This is the funding because I, I don't I do not believe um, I do not believe that we're not spending enough money because when you take uh, Delaware, it's about seventeen thousand dollars per student in comparison to surrounding states, other states are not spending as much and getting as good or even better results than we are when we look at our standardized tests. So I don't necessarily look at it from a position of we need more funding per student. I think we just need a better return on investment and a way to, you know, sharpen our pencils and cut out some of the fat so we can actually put the funding in the hands of teachers to teach kids in the classrooms day, day to day. Yeah. And that's to me, when we go back to regulation, and if DOE, and not to besmirch DOE, but I'm not running for office, so I guess I can speak a little more freely. <laughs> um, like when a legislation or a requirement comes down from DOE, it seems like that doesn't create typically a teacher unit with a classroom. It seems to create an administrative need or unit where you're removing people from the classroom, which increases class sizes. And that's where I get frustrated as a support person because I fight to be in the classroom. I get pissed when I get called for meetings because I'm like, but now I'm not providing services. So I'm gonna go to a meeting to talk about how to help kids. You know how I could help kids? By not being in this meeting and helping them in their class right now. I don't, so that's where my weird, like the the perplexity for me comes in where I understand you do need regulations and you do need guidance, but at the same time, the more of it that you have, it seems to in schools take away from boots on the ground, teachers in front of whiteboards. You you bring up a hundred percent, a great point. Uh, you know, as a reading specialist, why don't we have a certain number of specialists or instructional coaches or whatever as a differently funded unit rather than they're lumped in? You would be lumped in under someone's teaching units, yeah. whether that be a district unit or a building unit. And um, for every one of those very important uh, needs for specialists and coaches and all those sort of things. When I went to school, uh, you know, there were no instructional coaches right. at the high school level. There were no reading specialists. You had counselors, you had admin, you had teachers, but education has evolved. And I think there's a benefit for having these, but 
for every additional, you know, testing coordinator and specialist or instructional coach for every one of those, that's a teaching unit that could otherwise be an English teacher in a classroom, you know, teaching those basic skills. So as I said, I don't have a magic wand on how to fix the problem, but our funding system is one of the most antiquated in the United States. And I think that these, these specialty positions, which are there to benefit the kids need to have a separate funding line because for every one of those positions, you're eating up what otherwise would be a teacher teaching kids in classrooms, which would reduce those ratios, as you said. So we don't have a class of 28 or 32. Maybe we've got a class of, you know, 20, you know, 18 even. Yeah. The other issue seems to be the school buildings themselves. And I'm, yes. I don't know how much you've, you're probably way more familiar than I am, but I know when Cape was going through the referendum, it was always like, well, there's rules to how big stuff can be. Not, and then they finally, maybe it was 10, 15 years ago, accepted projected growth versus like current growth, which to me to blew my mind. Extent. Say again? To a very small extent. Okay. They, they allow for projected growth, but not nearly, you know, if we were to give them, um, you know, where we've come in the last 10 years and where we see the next 10 years, uh, it, it, it's a lot less than, um, it's a lot less than, than what you're seeing. I'll, I'll give you a for, uh, a for instance, and I don't, didn't mean to cut you off. We're, we're growing pretty fast. Uh, Sussex Central High School, uh, when I became principal um, in 2014, we had uh, just under 1,400 students. When we opened up the building back in 2004, the fall of 2004, we had about 1,200 students. So you take from 2004 to 2014, we grew 200 kids, basically. Um, from 2014, where we were at 1,400 students to now, we're at 2,050 students. So there, there, you, you can't look at things over a 20-year period. You should be able to look at things kind of on a, a five or even 10-year projection. When we passed our referendum, we wanted a certificate of necessity for a 2,400-student high school. And the state balked at it. They wanted us to build a 2,000-student a high school. At the time, we already had 1,800 students. We're now over 2,000 students. And then the compromise was we're building a school for 2,200 students. So by the time we move into our school in the fall of 2025, we will likely be at 2,200 students. Now, having lived the last uh, few years like I've lived, we're in a building built for 1,500 students. We've got 2,000 in there where we've got modular trailers. Uh, and, and, and that fixes the classroom part, but it doesn't fix. There's only one cafeteria. Yeah. There's only one gym. There's only one theater. There's only one library. There's only one main office. There are only so many bathrooms. There's only so uh, much width of a hallway. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. So uh, I will say that uh, we're blessed to work with a really great architectural group and, and, and builders and uh, in our construction project that, you know, there are already plans when we move into the school where there can be expansion at the least cost. And uh, we've already built um, we built the systems and living in the life we live now to to not have to go back to the taxpayers to ask to expand a project immediately after it's built, but to uh, utilize the space we have. So I, I don't want this to be a signal to anyone that as soon as the school's built, we're going to go back to referendum. That's not going to be the case. But when and if that takes place another 10 years, 15 years, maybe 20 years from now, that uh, we'll be able to do it at the least cost because of smart planning at the outset. But you bring up a very good point when it comes to the space and the state really, really needs to take another look at, um, you know, how we build projects for projected growth and what their idea of projected growth is 
versus how that's implemented in the real world is vastly different. It, so there's two things that I take away from that. The first is it makes you on a local level look like you had no idea what was going on. Like you couldn't plan. It makes you look very foolish, which usually is not the case. It's usually you can only get so much money from the state in order to put it in. And if the state's flush with money, I, I personally don't understand why they wouldn't want to invest in that infrastructure because now the community has a resource. So even if, God forbid, you have 10 extra classrooms that are completely empty, why couldn't they be rented out by local groups to do things or used? I know our gyms and our fields are used all the time and our facilities requests are backlogged and there, there's like a fight to get into our facilities. People want to use it. It can help create small businesses. I mean, like I just see it as an opportunity. God forbid there's a natural disaster. Now you have all this extra space that should be very well built that can withstand it, that can support people who have like terrible homes you know, who are out of power for a sustained period of time. Like, I just see it as a benefit and I never understood why the state was so frugal with square footage. Yeah, and once again, something else I'd like to roll my sleeves up and tackle. I don't have all the answers to it, but I'd be able to ask the pointed questions to the right people and get things done. Yeah. And that's, you know, yet another reason why I'm, why I'm running. Yeah, which makes sense. Because that, that's why I like the bunch of full-time people having different experiences. Because you almost get like specialists of, oh, Dr. Leafield can kind of be the educational guy and like can guide us. And maybe because he does it, can ask specific pointed questions versus right. how come our unit are jacked up, you know? Um, anything else educationally that you wanted to touch on? We got into teacher units, building schools a little bit, um, student bill 85 or house Senate bill, I'm sorry, 85. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things as a, you know, coming from a high school perspective, and I often kind of scratch my head, and I'm all for data and striving to be the best, but Delaware is one of very, very few states that use the SAT as our um, high school accountability measure. And, um, you know, when I went to school, probably when you went to school, the only folks that took the SAT were those kids who wanted to get into college because they wanted to see your SAT score. Now, several states offer the SAT. I think, I think it's 45 or 46 states actually offer a school day SAT where everyone can take it for free. But Delaware is one of very, very few states, maybe only two or three, us, Maine, and maybe one or two others that say, this is actually going to be the accountability measure for how we say the percentage of kids that are proficient in math or proficient at English. Um, and that's a college and career readiness benchmark. I consider myself a relatively intelligent guy. I'm not all that smart. <laughs> I did not meet the college and career ready benchmark I, when I took that test in order to go to the University of Delaware. Dude, I have I my, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off. I just, I'm chuckling because like I have my doctorate now and I'm like summa cum laude. I graduated like a 3.9 GPA. I didn't even crack a thousand on my SAT. I think it was yeah, like a I was, 980. I was 1010. 10. Yeah, I was 980. And it's, you know why? And it, it goes to your accountability and consequence. At the time, I was like, wait, why am I taking this? If I want to go to college. At that point in my life, I was like, dude, I ain't going to college. Right. And it was, I gave, I had zero prep for it because it had but, zero but yet, impact. But yet I'm put in a position where I go to the public. Um, yeah. This is more from my career than my, my political side, but I guess this is where the two mesh. And uh, folks say, so only 20% of your kids are proficient mathematics. It's like, 
Well, according to our measure, yes, you're correct. Only 20% of our kids or 18% or 16%. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to brag, but when we first started, we were at like 7% that met the college and career ready benchmark for both evidence-based reading and writing and mathematics, but that's higher level math. That's higher level English. And that's our accountability measure. We have a, a large number of uh, multilingual learners it used to be called English language learners, yeah. students who come to us with basic or, or non-existent, um, you know, levels of English proficiency. And if they've been with us for three years, let's say they came to the United States at the age of 15 or 16, after their third year, they're considered a junior in high school because they've matriculated. They're going to take a test, which I myself did not meet the college and career ready benchmarks. Yeah. And so, you know what the likelihood of uh, them being quote unquote proficient by that measure is, it's going to be close to zero. Now, all that being said, we still pride ourselves, our teachers and everyone in, in all schools, not just my own school, on you know trying to play to win the game. And we want to increase that proficiency. And I'm proud to say that we continually increased in my school each and every single year uh, until the pandemic hit. And you know, obviously, you know, we saw a little bit of a dip last year. What did we expect after you know two, sure. two and a half years of remote hybrid learning? But you know, we've got a new baseline. We're going to continue to fight for it. But I just think we're we're a little maybe off step on how we should be measuring kids, uh, particularly at the high school level. Not every kid wants or needs to go to college. College should be an option for every kid. But let's let's refocus um, how we maybe hold schools accountable based on their career and technical education uh, availability. Can kids leave high school with a career credential or some sort of certification that they can parlay either into trade school or directly into the to the workforce? You know, I actually have a have a small leak uh, in a pipe going to my water pump in my basement. I've got to call a plumber. They're probably making, on average, uh, an hourly rate better than me as a high school principal. So if you give them the skills, the, these young kids, the skills they need, um, you know, they can thrive in society if they don't want to go to college. So I think we're I think our assessments, in short, are a little off base as towards what our goals should be for a well-rounded education. Yeah, it I just keep going to the consequence because I see it with smarter balance in the middle school where yes. kids, the kids are like, so why do I need to do good? Like, and people, I don't think realize it's, it, it's like for us, it's a three hour test where it's like 40 questions and you're given an article to read. That would be like six pages, single print on Egyptian tomb building mummification. And you're a 12 year old boy. And you're like, wait, so I got to focus on this for 30 minutes and then answer six questions and then repeat that process six times. And then what happens if I do bad? Do I go to summer school? No. Do I get held back? No. So then what's the individual's consequence? What's the individual's accountability for that score? Well, they're going to mail it home and your parents are going to see that you got a one or a two below standard. Oh, right. that's it? Oh, that's fine. <laughs> and you're you fighting that you're fighting. I can't imagine come high school when they've right. learned the system. They're like, dude, I'm not going to college. What's this SAT? Do I even have to pay for it? No. Psh, what do I care? Yeah. Students often get that testing fatigue. And I think we put so much of a focus on testing. So we've got numbers that we can publish for, for the public, which is good. I'm all for accountability and transparency. Yeah. But when there's a disconnect between what teachers are doing every day in the classroom, I really think it, it ultimately kneecaps the teachers in, in, in how they're respected for what they do when you look at the accountability numbers. You know what they do in Florida, uh, at the high school level at least? At a, high, at a high school level in Florida, you need to pass a proficiency test, which is the equivalent of 10th grade English standards and algebra and geometry. And if you don't do that, 
on the quote unquote normal pace of the 10th grade, you're provided extra resources and remediation and you're retested again, along with the content that is aligned to the content you're taught. And then you can try it again in the 11th grade, try it again in the 12th grade. And if you don't meet those standards, uh, you don't graduate. Yeah. So the accountability for the teachers and the accountability for the students are all aligned. So uh, there, there are models out there that I think we can look at and uh, kind of reimagine, you know, education and how we uh, hold ourselves accountable and hold our students accountable. Because it really is an unfair comparison when you take some other schools and there are particular charter schools, I don't have to rag on them, where it's an extensive process to get in where it's very rigorous and the majority of those kids, their focus is to go to school to be educated, to get to college. And of course they kill standardized testing because they have a ton of support just from the basis of you had to fill out an application and you had to go to a bus stop that isn't right in front of your house to get to school or you have parents dropping you off. And it's a total different environment those kids are coming from. And you compare that to a public school that takes anybody and we fight to get everybody in education who lives within our um, boundaries. It's really an unfair comparison. And I love the fact that it's like, why not look at what's provided? Maybe not so much the outcome if there is no individual accountability for the outcome. Just like with discipline, when you're like, hey, but we offered, the kid went to counseling 20 times and still wound up punching someone in the face. Well, that like shouldn't count as a ding on your metric because you provided services. Right. The kid just didn't utilize them. And then, Hey, all right, well, did you have a case review for the kid to figure out what was the antecedent? What was the trigger? All right, cool. We don't need to, we don't need to ding you then. Cause you're providing the services you're looking out for it. That would be such a better measure of success. Yeah. And, and I agree. I'm all for choice and charter and uh, vocational schools because I think, you know, parents and students deserve a choice, but when you start comparing the certain metrics, it is comparing apples to apples. It, it takes, it takes an active, it takes an active parent, an active student to, um, to initiate, you know, seeking out a charter school, seeking out a vocational school, seeking out a private school. Um, whereas, as you said, public schools, if you live here, there's going to be a big yellow bus that's going to pick you up and they're going to drop you off. And I thrive on the, 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 the love of educating each and every, every kid that lives in the community where I live. I love it, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to besmirch, you know, uh, charter schools and other other schools of choice. And I believe parents, um, parents deserve to have those choices, but when it comes to measuring one versus the other, uh, I'll take, I'll take Sussex central's top kids versus any of our, any of the top kids in any charter school, uh, anywhere in the, in the state of Delaware or anywhere else. Uh, but you know what else I love? I love those struggling kids to provide them those basic tools that they're going to bring, bring about so they can actually thrive in the community where I happen to live. Yeah. I like that. And you're dead on the plumber, especially if it's the weekend is definitely making more than you an hour. <laughs> yes. All right. So anything else or should we put a bow on education and talk about something else? I think we're good. About? I think we're good. All right. Um, so it's there going through the article and I don't have to go just based on the article written by the Sussex central grad, but the Indian dredging up the Indian river seemed to be a big deal. Yes. And I don't know why that matters. Well, um, I happen to live in the waterfront house built by my great grandfather a century ago here on Jersey Road in Millsboro, right uh, directly across from Cubalo Park. I can see it looking out my sliding glass window now. And um, if anyone spends any time on the river, they would certainly know this as an issue. If you uh, were to traverse uh, or navigate the river um, anywhere west of the Indian River power plant 
on anything but high tide, you're going to end up stuck on a mud flat. Um, I, I, I uh, ask folks to go look at Driscoll drones uh, on Facebook or their YouTube videos because they actually did the Millsboro mud flats about a month, month and a half ago. You cannot get any type of vessel out of here, maybe a jet ski if you're lucky when it's low tide. Um, and this is a big part of the river. It hasn't been dredged since Richard Cordry was senator, who uh, just passed away here recently. His funeral was uh, yesterday. I served on the St. Mark's uh, vestry with uh, Senator Cordry. And when he was a senator, you could get in and out of Millsboro uh, for recreation, for commerce. You know, folks can bring a boat down. There are two different boat ramps, ramps at Cubelo Park. Unless it's a high tide, probably a lunar high tide at that, you can't get out to the river. Think about what more we could do to expand commerce along the entire Indian River mm. if we had a, a navigable waterway. And this really, really came to light for me about two and a half months ago um, when a friend of the family, um, an acquaintance of ours, there was a tragic boating accident round about, uh, well, uh, the, the power plant in Indian River where a girl got caught up in the prop and she's still going through rehabilitation. I mean, it's a miracle she's alive. And Millsboro Fire Company, Indian River Fire Company, the Coast Guard were all deployed. And Millsboro Fire Company could, got, could not get uh, their rescue vessel, uh, Marine One, out of Cubelo Park because there wasn't enough water. It's just a mudflat. I believe they were able to launch one of their smaller boats. And thankfully, Indian River Fire Company and the Coast Guard were able to respond sooner. But if, 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 if the river is going to be important, and I believe it is important, I've grown up here on the river hunting and fishing and crabbing and boating my entire life, then we need to have a navigable river. And not only having a navigable river by dredging the upper Indian River, uh, and also not, not just dredging the upper Indian River, but many of the areas where there are shifting sandbars and in the inland bays, but we also need to increase water quality. I think uh, the environment is something that a lot of times my friends on the Democrat side of the aisle feel that they've cornered the market on being environmentalists. Well, I'm an outdoorsman. <laughs> I'm a sportsman. Right. I'm, I'm an environmentalist. Yeah. I, I want clean water. And I also think there's a way to do that without increasing onerous regulation, increasing taxes, finding a way to dig into the pockets of others. We could, we could explore expanding, um, you know, aquaculture and oyster hatcheries and mussels and clams. And it's amazing what these little animals can actually do to increase water quality without having to, you know, pass another law and dig into someone's wallets for more taxpayer money. So the river, the river is, you know, there's salt in my veins. I'll just put it that way. The river's a, a, an important part of, uh, of my life. And since this new fourth district covers the entire Indian river, at least the Northern side of the Indian river and the inland bays, you know, I felt that it should be front of mind and that's why it's a priority. And I'm going to sound, I'm definitely way over my steez because I'm not much of an outdoorsman like that. I just enjoy going to the beach. I'm going to go back to expand commerce because I'm very curious about this. I have been to like Paradise Grill where the boats come up like crazy and it doesn't ever seem like boats can come up. I don't go there a ton, but I do yeah. hear people or someplace like um, Irish Eyes or down in Dewey where it seems like this boat infrastructure is getting built where people go to grab lunch, to have drinks, to enjoy summer days, and they all love it. And I'm guessing, can you just explain a little more about, do you see a particular area where like a bar or a restaurant or something could be built? Or how do you see the commerce opportunities being able to be expanded with dredging? Well, I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, Paradise Grill, all the places in Dewey, you know, on the on the inland bays there, uh, there's an awful lot of boat traffic, and you're right. 
I can tell you this is before my time, but I was a history teacher, so I'm, I'm not speaking from my own experience. Let me just preface that. Um, where Oak Orchard, um, which you really can't get to now because of the silt and the tides and everything else, where it's, oh, that's it's, not, as, it's oh. not as navigable, um, used to be like the hotspot. If you went back a century ago, like Rehoboth Beach and Dewey Beach, that was not the beach. When folks went to the beach, they went to Oak Orchard, Delaware. Uh, they went to Rosedale Beach for concerts uh, with Chubby Checker and even before then, back in the jazz age, a century ago. Oak Orchard and the Inland Bays were, were where it was at. There was a boardwalk in Oak Orchard. But you're right, Paradise Grill is great. All the areas in Dewey along the Indian, uh, Inland Bays are great. But think what we could do if we could reestablish commerce in Oak Orchard or even further west as you go towards the power plant and towards Millsboro if you had you know, a more navigable waterway. And when, when I say commerce, I'm not just talking about, you know, beachside bars and restaurants. That's very important. I'm all for it. But if you've got better water quality and a more navigable river, you've got more boats there for fishing. What's that going to do to all the local tackle shops? You know, right across the street from me is Kelly's. you got Rick's Bait and Tackle. You've got all kinds of different tackle shops. Shorts Marine, they're going to be selling more boats. It, it's a cyclical process and puts more money back into the economy if we take care of our river. And even I'm even thinking of like Quest kayaks or stand up paddle boards. Or I went to Dewey and jet skied, man. And um, probably because of the rent they got to pay, but it was like $130 an hour to jet ski. Right. And it was like one of those frivolous things you do. But it would have been great for me not to have to go 35 minutes down 24 and deal with traffic, but to hop over to Oak Orchard. I completely forgot like there's a restaurant, I don't know if it's still there, Serendipity, which Serendipity has this beautiful square. boardwalk, but it's like dried out. Like water doesn't even, or pier. The water didn't ever seem to touch it. And then isn't, if you take a right or keep going, isn't there like a um, um, like a yacht club or something? Yep, the Indian River Yacht Club. My, uh, my great, or excuse me, my grandfather, Orville Layfield, was the, uh, the head cook at the Indian River Yacht Club throughout the <laughs> 19, uh, late 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, so when I was knocking on doors down there, a lot of folks said, Layfield. Says there was a Layfield that used to be at the Yacht Club. So that was my grandfather. He made a damn good crab cake. <laughs> so dredging helps to get that water back just because, and this is going to make me again sound real simple. You dig up all the mud underneath, which allows water from the bay to then get further. Because if it's higher, water goes where it's low. So we need to dredge to get water low to the lower places. Is that an oversimplification? Yeah. Or? Uh, no, no, I think you, you did a good job. Now, the, the key to it is what do you do with the spoils, That's which what is I was obviously wondering. When, you, when you dig it out. Now, the, the Indian River, when I was a small kid, I remember this, and speaking with my dad who grew up in Oak Orchard right there on the river, there used to be a lot of small islands uh, out in the river. And you don't see that anymore because, you know, you got different areas that are mudflats. You could probably build up some of these areas with the spoils from the dredging, and therefore, you know, you could create more, um, you know, rookeries or, or areas for birds to nest and, and, and other areas that are outside of the, the navigable channels. Um, and also build up, you know, a spot where maybe you can go catch a fish and where birds can go nest and, you know, and, you know, hatch the, hatch the next generation. So I don't, I don't claim to be an environmental biologist, um, but I'm an outdoorsman, I'm a sportsman, and I want to work with, you know, the Center for the Inland Bays in Denrec, maybe create a task force to see what we can do, one, to make the river more navigable, two, to increase the water quality, and three, uh, first and foremost, do it in a way that doesn't increase taxes or add regulation. And I, I think there's a way to strike that balance. I'm sitting here 
in my head wondering like, what's the difference between this bike trail that keeps getting, that continue gets expand, which is wonderful. Like, dude, I'm on that thing. I did a 240 mile challenge. I, I used that bike trail from Harbison all the way to Ocean City and came back and I love it. And it's packed. Why can't that, why, why couldn't the dredging and this ecotourism of kayaking, stand up paddle boarding, jet skis, boats be part of what helps us in that way? Like ecotourism, I would, people would, I would, I couldn't imagine ecotourism if you had these little islands and all of these like different bird watching opportunity or fish or whatever wildlife you want to go see. It seems like that would be an amazing spring, summer, fall for Sussex County. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent with you. I mean, we, we, uh, we do a lot of good things, uh, as you said, with the bike trails and other things, but I'm going to be a voice in Dover to bring a priority to the river to do exactly what you just said. I, I do have a friend. I don't know much about the oysters, but I thought there was parts where like it was like almost rent free where you could get certain sections at a really long lease to build the infrastructure. Do you know much about this to help like compensate for my ignorance yeah. on it? <laughs> I, I'm learning about it myself. Um, a good friend of mine, Rick Chamberlain, I know has worked with a small group of folks uh, with the Center uh, for the Inland Bays and the University of Delaware, looking to uh, find out how we can capture resources, whether they be federal, uh, state money, whereas a legislator, I would have you know some say in that as far as grants and aid. Uh, working with the University of Delaware, who already has a College of Marine Sciences that's uh, you know on the waterways. To expand, we, we have very, very small aquaculture hatcheries. There's actually one behind Old Inlet Bait and Tackle there in the Inland Bays. But looking to do that on a larger scale outside of the channels and, and the, the waterways that where folks are using, you know, to go fishing and traverse from one way to uh, from one point to another. So I'm learning more about that myself. And I was intrigued by it uh, because, you know, I've made the river uh, a big part of my campaign. So because of that, people who are more in tune to reaching out to me and educating me and um, not just with the river, not just with education, not just with public safety. Um, I, I, I've said since the beginning as a principal, you, your concerns are my concerns. Come to me with a problem. I'm going to learn about it. I'm going to listen intently. And I'm going to, I'm going to act and try to get you a solution. So I'm learning more about that myself. Gotcha. I, the, the guy I'm thinking of, I think it's Pink Pearl Oysters. And I've heard the amazing quality. You drop oysters in there, they filter out toxins. Like 50, yeah, it's like 50 gallons of water per day per yeah. oyster. And, but it's turning into the business where, you know, now restaurants, it's almost like a microbrew, but the oysters are micro oysters. Come get local oysters. And apparently they taste great because of the high salinity that's in right. the water. And it's getting to the point where he's able to take on like interns who can then learn about the business and then go open their own, however many miles away, whatever many down. And now you're like, you're creating this whole filtering system that's also a business that also then helps restaurants and commerce and gets people outside who love to be outside. It just seems like such an easy way to encourage if the land, and that's the thing I didn't know, how do they get access to the land to put the oysters in the bay or in the waterways in order to then harvest them? And I don't have an answer to that, but it's, it's definitely something I would like to see leveraged, uh, kind of going back to what I said earlier, you know, you, it, it helps small business, helps the restaurants, uh, going back to education. Yeah. What a great career and technical education type field. Uh, you know, we, we have a very big, you know, agriculture program. I see that this is an offshoot of that, you know, go out and work the waters, uh, for either the hatcheries or, you know, being the person to provide, uh, provide the oysters and clams and mussels and other shellfish to uh, local restaurants. Yeah. 
to touch on water quality, should I not be wigged out about the like chicken plants and power plants? Am I going to get like a radioactive third eye somewhere if I'm in this water? How often is this tested? Does that need to be a regulation? Can you talk a little bit about water quality and then how to monitor? And I don't know if like um, fine is even the right word to bring up or. Well, I'll tell you, I've learned a lot more about this and it's not the water quality is not as negatively impacted by Mount Air Farms or other farmers who have farmland, you know, near or along the river as much as it is um, impervious surfaces with greater developments uh, mm. on the river where, you know, when, when, when I park, there's, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, condensation from the air conditioner and things that drip on the bottom of your vehicle. Uh, you, you run through mud and you run through other things and all of those things when it rains, you know, falls on the concrete or the asphalt and then it goes to the lowest place, as you said earlier. And when you have developments along the river, um, that has as much to do, if not more to do than what we've got with a lot of our larger farms. And speaking with Kathy Bassett at Mount Air Farms and, and a few other you know, farmers that know Beth, uh, best, um, uh, Ricky Williams for an R&L irrigation talks about Delaware livable lawns. It's not as much the herbicides, pesticides, fertilizer, all those sort of things going out on our farm that is reaching, that's negatively impacting and reaching our waterways as it is all the things we're bringing from life, you know, our cars, our person, everything we're bringing in to these developments that when it rains goes straight into the water. And there are th certain things um, I'm learning that we can do as far as the waste, uh, wastewater management ponds that are required with these developments where there can be certain filters. There's a certain amount of vegetation that could be or should be put in there that naturally filter this uh, towards those wastewater retention ponds rather than towards the river. So the county has come a long way in the developments that they approve that are along the waterways. I know John Riley is a, is, is a big advocate of our, uh, of our waterways when it comes to uh, developments that, that are approved. So is Doug Hudson. They, uh, they represent a large portion of the Indian River on the county council. So is it perfect? No. Is it something that I'm going to continue to uh, fight for and monitor? Yes. But I always come to it from a period, uh, from a point of view of how can I do this without burdening our local businesses, our local farmers with extra taxes and fees but at the same time, holding them accountable for keeping our, our river clean. So then in your capacity, would it be, so is that legislative? Is that a DENREC regulation? Or is that just trying to help like county council put that All in? Like who would, who would be the actual, this is the rule and they get to set the rule person or department? Yeah, well, I think all, all need to have skin in the game. Uh, county council plays a part, DENREC plays a part, and the legislature plays, in, uh, plays a part. One thing that I, I, I don't want is to have DENREC being sort of this dictatorial, um, you know, autonomous authority where there are bureaucrats, bureaucrats telling businesses, telling farmers, you can do this, you can't do this without legislative oversight. Hmm. Ultimately, the, the legislators are accountable to the people. They're the ones who show up to vote, to vote for legislators, to go there to be their voice. But I think a lot of that uh, authority has been ceded to some of these larger um, executive branch uh, departments. Uh, DEMREC is one of the largest, DELDOT also there, where it shouldn't be that you're told what to do by someone who's not accountable to anyone and your only recourse is to call your legislator if you happen to have their number, which is 
the Delaware way. There, there's something quaint about that. But at the same time, you shouldn't have to know the number of your state legislator in order to uh, get something done where you're being jerked around by a state agency. I think that there needs to be more legislative oversight working with DENREC, not necessarily bashing DENREC. I think they do a lot of work. But ultimately, if an agency or any branch of government is not accountable to the people and autonomous, they will take their authority to the nth degree. Okay. Because, yeah, I think of the business and the regulation part, and I guess I find myself falling on, I enjoy less regulation, or at least the concept of it. But then when I hear about waterways and cleaning, to me, I'm like, well, that's a regulation. And that's a limit on my personal freedom of, as a business, me being able to construct a development, which gives jobs, which gives commerce, or transfer tax, everything. But at the same time, it's for the whole good. So I don't know like who would make them on, I'm sure there's regulation with how big the pond has to be versus how many homes you have to have. And like, why couldn't you throw in there, hey man, you got to maintain blank amount of vegetation or install blank filters. And then that cost would get, I would assume either ate by the company or passed on to the home buyers who are purchasing in the development, which seems to be like what a kind of a free market balance would be or should be. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I I don't claim to know all the nuance of everything that goes on with a development, but I I do know that there needs to be greater communication between the state and the county, those state agencies when it comes to development, because ultimately I have learned uh, in in talking with people that probably one of the biggest impacts uh, on the Indian River and the inland bays as far as water quality has not come from Mount Air Farms or individual family farms, but from development uh, along our waterways. Yeah, and I don't know if it's the same, but my daughter does junior guards in Rehoboth. And um, I guess they have that outfall project in Rehoboth. Mm-hmm. And heavy rain, the guards won't let the kids get in there because I think they've had three or four high bacteria alerts. Yes. And I think that's, it, it's not development per se, like what I'm thinking of cornfield turns into uh, 130 homes, but it's heavy rain. And then Rehoboth, everything that's in Rehoboth gets washed into gutters and then goes right into the Atlantic. And then all of a sudden yeah. it's like, kids, if you have an open cut, you could have bacteria in there. Don't go in the water. Yeah, it's once again, impervious surfaces uh, surfaces after you have a big rain. And um, that's what's that's what's calling uh, causing those bacteria, uh, you know, outbreaks. And we had an algae bloom here in the upper part of the Indian River just a couple of years ago. Same thing. After heavy rains, all of the bad stuff that's out there on the asphalt and the concrete just gets washed away. Um, in a rain and the good news is mother nature clears itself up uh after a while but we need to do our part in um you know helping mother nature out and so to go back to dredging this is interesting to me too like so if you dredged up and there was more water is it stupid to think that more water would just help with this issue as well because all of the bacteria all of the issue all of the sediment that gets washed in would have more water to be diluted into or is that an oversimplification um that may be the case i can tell you something that i believe would probably be um now this is going to come at a cost to the taxpayer but i believe would would increase the water quality is uh allowing for more uh more water to come into the indian indian river and inland bays other than just the indian river inlet there is a tackle shop called old inlet tackle shop where that was the natural inlet so that maybe we can build up parts of route one either just north or just south of the indian river inlet now where naturally before we put roads and houses and everything else up where water could flow in and out of the indian river in the inland bays out to the ocean rather than everything flowing through that very very narrow uh 
narrow uh, passageway of the, of the inlet. Obviously, have Roosevelt Inlet further to the north, but there's so much water that could move in and out of the Indian River and inland bays if we allowed for uh, Mother Nature to um, to allow those other access points to be there. And if we're going to keep, keep uh, Route 1 um, open, which we need to do, uh, we need to build that up around it. Um, and I, I've seen it done when I travel down to the Outer Banks, uh, where there's not just there's not just one inflow of water into uh, into the sound behind the Outer Banks from the Atlantic Ocean. It's not just Oregon Inlet, but there are several places when you're traveling Route 12 on the Outer Banks, for those who have been down there, where water flows back and forth between the ocean and the sound. Would it have any other benefit? Because I'm wondering about like flooding and like how the Route 1 can be flooded with high water or whatever. Would that help to have less flooding in certain areas? It, it may, but uh, once again, that's something where I would leverage uh, my, my resources and my contacts with DENREC to see what positives may be there. I mean, in, in theory, in my mind, it sounds logical that yeah. it may help for more outflow. Now, obviously, if you've got a strong east wind that's keeping all the water up here, I mean, I've had water, you know, come up to basically my back deck here in Cubelo Park on a big nor'easter. Uh, you're not going to fight the wind, but uh, certain flooding uh, cases, it, it very well may. Gotcha. Yeah, I see, I don't know if I, I feel like I like those kind of infrastructure projects just because now you also have access. And again, I'm not a boater, but I also wonder if you're out there, if you want to get out there, there has to be a little bit of a bottleneck if there's only one way in, one way out. You add two waterway wise, I'm like, okay, I could see investing some money into that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So drudging, taxpayer cost drudging, is that like a Army Corps of Engineers grant that the state of Delaware applies for? How do you not jack up all of our taxes to get this thing dredged? Um, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers could very well make this, you know, it could be a federalized project. When you talk about interstate commerce, there's really not a whole lot of interstate commerce going in and out of the Indian River. However, our channels were originally, um, you know, dug and built by Army Corps of Engineers as a, fed, uh, as a federal project. So there are different ways you can leverage, you know, taxpayer money, whether it be um, Delaware taxpayer money or federal dollars that can help with the, the that project. I know that one of the hot button issues in dealing with the environment is offshore wind. Mm -hmm. um, and if if that's coming, um, you know, they're going to need a place to basically take what's generated from those windmills and run the line somewhere. We've got the NRG power plant that is slated to close as far as a coal fired power plant. So maybe they run the lines from offshore wind, you know, up through the river to the any river power plant. And therefore, you can not only harness Delaware taxpayer money in the bond bill, but also federal monies, and also uh, leverage the the very deep pockets of uh, U.S. Wind or some of these other conglomerates that are, are doing the offshore wind projects from Maine all the way down to Florida. Who gave you that idea? Because that sounds like just so smart and easy. <laughs> um, I talked to a lot of people. I've heard I, I've heard it from several, and I, and I'm I'm not against wind. Um, I'm against shutting down all fossil fuels, coal-fired coal, uh, coal power plants, and getting rid of, you know, like they did in California. And I believe uh, Governor Carney actually said they want to do in Delaware where you can't sell a, a gasoline-powered vehicle. We don't have an electric grid to support any of that. I'm all for alternatives, but I don't think we need to just carte blanche say no fossil fuels, period, because it makes us feel good. We need to we need to find a happy, a happy medium and transition. So wind is coming. And I'm all for uh, wind power to augment what we already have to add to our power grid. But uh, 
it, it like you said, it seems it's common sense. And I brought it up saying, you know, they're going to close the NRG power plant. They obviously have whatever mechanisms, I'm no engineer, whatever mechanisms to take coal fire and turn it into tra- uh, electricity and transition it to electricity. So if they're going to have offshore wind 13, 14, 15 miles out of the Indian River Inlet, we've got a resource right here in that power plant that, you know, can trans. if you can transfer coal fire into electricity, you can probably transfer, uh, you know, wind, wind turbine um, energy into electricity. And there's a way to run the lines and go straight up the river. Therefore, uh, we need the river dredged. And it's not just for recreation and commerce and boating and public safety. It's also about enhancing our power grid. And then that would expand it from just a Delaware financial state to a federal because that energy can then, so all you have to do is cross state lines to make it federal. So if some of that energy kicks over to Maryland or gets down to Virginia, Hey, now exactly. we're, uh, got you. Now we're eligible for federal. Yeah, The gas thing's so interesting to me because I, I feel like it's creating a monopoly and I want competition. And like, if you're going to get rid of fossil fuels, then all of a sudden all these electric people, like what's their advance, what's their incentive to be as efficient as they can, to be better than diesel engines or gas engines. And I'm like, I want both. Maybe monitor, right. make sure we're not killing the environment with gas, but I want gas looking over electric shoulder being like, are we making our vehicles as efficient as possible? And I want electric looking over their shoulders to be like, are we making our vehicles as powerful and lasting as long as a gas engine portable? You know, like I'd I'd like the idea of competition. I don't understand why we want to create monopolies with that. Yep. I'm I'm all for free markets. That's what uh, capitalism in America was built on. Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah. I I enjoy them too. Um, So anything else, Indian River wise that you'd like to I think, address. I think we've covered it. All right. And then um, one other thing I noticed, um, and I, I don't want to jack the wording up, but basically it's like safety and police officers um, and crime. So how do you like to phrase that? And what do you want to emphasize with public safety? Well, we're, we're growing. That's why the fourth district moved from Wilmington down here to Sussex County. We're growing. And with that comes more of everything we've got more senior citizens we've got more young families unfortunately we have more criminals and we need to support our police officers and being able to um, monitor and patrol and and prosecute criminals to keep the general public safe we also need to provide the funding and the support to our ems our fire companies and all those first responders you know our hospitals um, you know, Delaware, when I was a kid, you had Nanakoke Hospital and Seaford and you had BB <laughs> Hospital. And that was it. You didn't have the satellite campuses of each and Tidal Health and AGH and everything. So everything needs to grow uh, commensurate with, you know, our population growth. So I'm the grandson, the son and the brother of Delaware State Troopers. My brother, uh, Rodney, is currently still a state trooper. He's the captain of Troop 3. So supporting the police is not just, you know, kind of a a campaign cliche that a Republican candidate says, because uh, we back the blue. Yeah, I back the blue uh, because uh, I've lived and breathed it my entire life. I've got a brother that on any given day could be in a critical situation and have to put his life on the line. My dad lived it. My grandfather lived it. Uh, one of my best friends growing up was um, Officer Chad Spicer, who was killed in uh, 2009, uh, Georgetown PD, you know, just after his 29th birthday. So it, it, it's not a hollow statement to say we need to support the police. And there are smart ways we can do that. One, by one, first and foremost, prosecuting the criminals. 
when the police have to put all this work uh, work in to actually go and arrest people uh, where they find the data where there are hot spots and then the attorney general's office ends up dropping the charges, uh, that has to be disheartening to, to our police. Uh, we have to leverage the funds that are already available to augment and support uh, EMS and firefighters. You have grants and aid, you have uh, uh, community transportation funds, CTF funds is what they're called. Uh, something unique about the fourth district is there are no municipalities actually in the fourth. It's just outside of Millsboro. It's, you know, just south of, of, of Lewis, uh, just to the west of Harbison. So it's all unincorporated areas, Oak Orchard, Long Neck and Angola. Yeah, they're, they're in a certain zip code, but there are no municipalities. So when it comes to those community transportation funds, many times that is a, a, a particular uh, grant, so to speak, that a legislator can give to those municipalities to help augment any of those projects. So we can give back a lot of those funds to our firefighters, our EMS. Uh, when I was a kid, um, there were no such thing as um, paramedics. You had EMTs, part of ambulance services that were attached to, to fire companies. My mother, Cheryl Layfield, was actually the first um, a paramedic instructor when Sussex County made the investment to start the EMS service with the paramedics back in 1991 or 1992. And back then, all of Sussex County was basically covered by two or three um, uh, paramedics. Uh, it's stations. crazy. It's crazy to Sussex think about. County. It is insane to think about now. Right. And that wasn't that long ago. You know, <laughs> yeah. if I'm speaking to a 20 year old, they're like, yeah, that's before I was born. But you know, I'm not all that old myself, 42, up until I was 12 or 13. You basically had an ambulance that was attached to the fire company where you had volunteers that could not provide those 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 medical treatments that paramedics can do those life-saving treatments you know on scene uh, basically they just transported them to the hospital and my god how many lives have we saved from folks not dying on transport from the scene to the hospital because we have a paramedics and an ems service that can um that can help and that and that's not just a state legislator thing that's a county council thing working with the state legislature so public safety uh, so I don't ramble on too long. Public safety is is front of mind for me. Uh, I think it's front of mind for for all of the voters in the fourth. And that doesn't just mean police. It doesn't just mean firefighters. It doesn't just mean EMS. But uh, I, I can tell you, large city crime is encroaching into areas of the fourth. Uh, you yeah. see the opioid epidemic. I mean, I see it, unfortunately, as a high school principal with a lot of our youth. But it's not just the youth. It's adults and, and, and other folks who are... Um, you know, in a bad place right now and where Oak Orchard and Long Neck yeah, uh, see the uptick in opioid overdoses and in drug related uh, crime. Uh, I know there was a murder in Capitol Park in Dover about three months ago. Uh, and where did they find the the uh, the perpetrator two days later at the Wawa in Long Neck hanging out down here in Sussex County? Yeah. And we need we need to give the resources to our police officers to patrol and prosecute the criminals and, and rely on their expertise. And if they if they need more police, work with the county council. How can they fund how can they fund more state troopers down here in Troop Four and Troop Seven, even on the west side in uh, in Troop Five? Is that how state police funding works? It goes through the county council. No, no, not necessarily. Uh, this the legislator uh, legislature actually. Uh, it's an act of law. It's in Delaware Code. Sets the number of uh, troopers that are in the division. And believe it or not, I think it's about 725, a little over 700 troopers. However, we only have about 650 troopers patrolling statewide right now. Hmm. Um, 
you see kind of the, 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 the black mark that police have had after the George Floyd incident and lack of support from the general public where they're, um, they're not recruiting as many troopers as they did when my brother first came on. So we can increase the number of troopers right now by statute. But what the Sussex County Council does, because they're very good fiscally, is they end up subsidizing extra troopers to um, be placed into Troop 5 over in Bridgeville, Troop 7 in Lewis, Troop 4 in Georgetown. Those are the three troops that oversee Sussex County. They subsidize uh, through council funding, whatever it costs for a state trooper when it comes to salaries and other employment costs, OECs. And then what the state does is they match that amount to put more troopers um, in other parts of the, of the state in, Kent, in Newcastle County. So right now there are 22 uh, Sussex County funded troopers over and above what we normally would have patrolling because of that investment from Sussex County Council. And I believe that's a partnership that we can definitely continue to, to turnkey to have uh, you know better service for Sussex Counties. It's a heck of a lot cheaper than us starting, say, a, a Sussex County Police Department like they have in Newcastle County, where it's hundreds of millions of dollars of budgetary oversight. You have to have the facilities, the barracks, and everything else for a completely different police agency. So I applaud the Sussex County Council for doing that. And that's something I would definitely uh, continue to support as a state legislator. And this might be a really stupid question because I love asking stupid questions. Um, so, but if the gap between what's allowed in statute versus what is there, the 750 to 650, if that gap wasn't there, would Sussex County Council even have to fund it? Or would those state troopers just be here? Yes and no. One, we would have more troopers based on the gap for what's allowed. And two, we would still get a return on investment from the extra funding that, uh, that Sussex County Council has given. So ultimately, you know, if, if the recruiting numbers were up and there were qualified candidates, we'd still, we'd actually have more uh, troopers patrolling, not just in Sussex County, but statewide, which is a statewide issue. But uh, once again, where so much of Sussex County is un unincorporated and there's not a municipal police department yeah. between, just take the fourth district. There's not a municipal police department between Millsboro until you get to Lewis. Yeah, I, I mean, do. That's, that's a long stretch of Route 24. It's not only a long, but there's also a lot of, um, and I'm not sure what the word would be like, I want to say like tributaries, but like finger branch offs, yes. like Oak right. Orchard Road probably needs a cop down there. Potnet, you need a cop around Potnets and Oak Orchard Road going down to Massey's Landing and making a little U, but that's a long drive because it's not a circle, you know, well, but it needs to be patrolled. Yeah, it's, it's funny you bring that up. I know... Um, the, the state police look just like in education. You look at the data and figure out uh, where where is there an issue that you need to attack or approach. So what they found was Oak Orchard was becoming a hotspot for core crimes. I'm not talking petty theft or things like that, uh, burglaries, robberies, you know, things like things of that nature. And Oak Orchard, you know, was becoming a hotspot. So uh, Troop 4 actually covers everything in the 4th District from Millsboro up to Bay Farm Road going back to the peninsula. Okay. And then Troop 7 covers everything from the Angola area, Love Creek, all the way up to Bay Farm Road. So basically all of Long Neck is Troop 7, Oak Orchard is Troop 4. So Captain Wood at uh, Troop 4 basically said, we're looking at our data. We need to do saturation patrols where we're spending at least four hours at a time um, you know, per shift, excuse me, in, in Oak Orchard. And then that kind of morphed into uh, a better policing presence where they broke it up saying that 
we have an allocation of four hours per shift that patrol officers need to be in Oak Orchard, but we're not going to do it in a four-hour block. Each mm -hmm. of the officers are troopers on patrol. They're doing 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off. So out of every single hour during a shift, there's a patrol officer now in Oak Orchard every 15 minutes. And the evildoers and the criminals don't know when that 15 minutes is. Or if this trooper leaves and there's going to be another trooper right there behind him or if they're going to have a gap, um, you know, every 15 minutes here, there, and, and it became randomized. And what, what happened? Because of that strong police work, we saw a decrease in those core crimes in Oak Orchard. And I think with more troopers on patrol, as you said, going down, you know, Long Neck from, from Long Neck, uh, from the from Melson's funeral home all the way down to Massey's Landing, that's a long stretch of road. Uh, fortunately, I know uh, Mr. Tunnel and his developments has public safety officers, but they're not sworn officers. So having an increased presence like they did in Oak Orchard to meet that hot spot down in Long Neck, maybe in Angola and around Camp Arrowhead Road, ultimately increases public safety and, and gives a peace of mind to the people who live there. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's just weird that it's this dead end and it seems like it would, you think 24, but you don't think of all the lefts you can take right. off at 24 heading west or all the rights if you're heading to the beach. And it's like, those roads are long and there are, they are dense with communities because it's mostly mobile home parks. Right. And it, there's a lot of people living there. Can I be kind of negative about cops? Not that I don't support cops or veterans because I served in National Guard and I really appreciate people who put their life on the line, firemen who volunteer, run into a burning building, braver than me. It goes to the metric. And I want to say, and I'll jack this up, there was a cop that was like safety officer of the month or something that wound up like making up writing tickets. <laughs> and, yeah. and like, that's where I get really, really pissed because I hate getting ticketed maybe because I don't like being inconvenienced, paying more for my insurance or whatever. But the metrics of arrests, I don't know what the balance is. Like if a cop made no arrests, then all of a sudden we'd be like, we don't need cops, right? Because you're not doing your job. And it's like, well, maybe they're just deterring. So there's no metric to measure their deterrence. So I don't want cops out there feeling like or having quotas that they have to make so many arrests, that they have to write so many tickets. But I, I do want cops around. So I, I right. don't know your thoughts on like how to strike that balance or if that's just a stupid perspective and I need to be better educated on it. No, I agree with you. I mean, what metrics do we do we look at? Is it about the number of traffic tickets you're writing or is it about the number of burglars and robbers and violent felons that you're actually bringing to justice justice through investigations and, and patrolling? Um and there, there should be, just like we looked at hot spots for those core crimes, there should be those hot spots for things like traffic tickets. I'm thinking where I live here on Jersey Road. A lot of people coming on 24 into Millsboro, uh, as you know, can be backed up. And everyone <laughs> sees this little offshoot to the left. Oh, here's a light. Oh, let me travel down there. And that they don't realize they're basically in jail trying to get to the end of Jersey Road, hanging a left with all the traffic going back and forth with no light. But there are people that speed down Jersey Road where one of my neighbors literally two weeks ago, uh, her dog was ran over and killed. You know, for someone, it's a 25-mile-an-hour it's speed limit, and people are literally doing 70 miles an hour down Jersey Road. Are those the traffic tickets where maybe we could uh, put patrol officers to maybe have a positive impact on folks who are, you know, creating a danger due to their speed? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I get where you're coming from. I support police, but I also... Don't like the ideas of, of quotas for a certain number, particularly of the traffic incidents and, and, and the, the things that we see as petty, although they are important, laws are there for a reason. But I think maybe the metrics we should, we should look at are 
how many how many drug interdictions are we doing? How many folks that are violent felons are we apprehending? Um, and this is probably hard to measure, but how many of those felonies are we preventing by by what we do? And that's 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 hard to measure. But ultimately, that's what police work should be all about, all about not just responding to the crimes, but how do we how do we become preventative in that? Yeah, like the a reduction measure. But you don't want the reduction measure to be the metric because then it's like, do you ignore it? Because you're supposed to have arrests go down by 10%. So now you don't arrest. You know, like that's where a, a leadership thing that I, my mind starts spinning. And it's like, I want to take a whole day and just like make flow charts and have strings attached to ideas on some sort of cockboard to be like, what is a good way to measure to show that it's being efficient, but at the same time, not just making people feel like the only way I can advance my career is if I hit so many citations because that makes me look like a better cop. Therefore, I can climb the ranks because I feel like that's what happens. You look you look better by making more arrests and having, um, I don't know, getting those awards. Yeah, and I, I know it's taboo to ever compare law enforcement to schools because uh, folks have uh, coined the phrase the school to prison pipeline when you're dealing with students who have discipline issues who go on to become criminals. But just as I said earlier, that there was there was stupid legislation that basically just focuses on the suspensions. Hey, let's reduce suspensions without saying we need to reduce incidents of student misbehavior. The last thing we should do is say we should reduce the number of arrests, meaning all of a sudden criminals are still going to be criminals. Um, so it, it's it's really all a matter of what's measured and what's put out to the public. I'm for transparency and accountability, but people really have to dig in to know exactly what they're looking at. Yeah. and. If we get more cops, just because I guess I had asked about the dredging and such, to me, the funding issue becomes a little weird. You, you'll most likely know more about this than I do. I see it as like cops, when they create fines, get seizures, that somehow can lead to more cops and funding more cops. So then it like is this cycle of we need as a state to gain so much revenue through citations to continue to have the cops we get or possibly even get more officers. Am I completely yeah, I, wrong about that? Um, not completely wrong, but not completely right either, to, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge. You know, I mean, the police agencies are not self-funding where they have to be autonomous based on the number of citations and fines and fees that they get in. I mean, for, take the state police, for example. There's a line item within the state budget for the state police, regardless of how many tickets are written, you know, for speeding or, or, or whatever fines are paid. And, and the same goes with municipalities. Um, now, we all know there are certain municipalities that uh, it's kind of like a speed trap when you go go in there. Um, and they rely probably more heavily on the funding that they're getting from fines and fees uh, to augment their budget. But even in those towns, there's a certain line item within their budget to, to fund the police. So I don't necessarily know that the number of tickets and those sort of things that are written um, augment the number of police officers you have on patrol in my opinion, you need to look at the data, make a database decision, where are your higher incidents of crime, and that's where you put up a, a greater police presence, which is exactly what Troop 4 did with Oak Orchard. And hopefully, um, you know, uh, we have those resources with Troop 7, should there be an uptick or a hot spot in areas of Long Neck or, or anywhere else in Sussex County. Yeah. And that what I don't want to have happen is that you have an uptick in crime and there's not enough patrol officers. If that's the case, we need to look to, to fund more officers. Yeah, yeah, because and I feel like the state police is seen as a very desired job 
by town and local cops. And I may be wrong about that, but I think it's definitely like a step up pay wise, definitely a step up perceived, like um, reputation wise. How do you, do you want to get the recruitment back up to that like 750 level? How would you want to do that? Well, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I was just talking with uh, County Councilman Doug Hudson, who's a retired state trooper. When he came on the uh, Delaware State Police back in the early to mid 80s, I think he started in 84, he told me. Uh, there was a state police class of around 50 or 60 uh, recruits that went on to become state troopers. There were over 2,500 or close to 3,000 people who applied to become a state trooper in a class where they were taking less than 50. Now they're putting out for a class of 50, and you're lucky to get maybe 200 recruits. Wow. So, or, or applicants, excuse yeah. me. And of those applicants, there's a rigorous, uh, you know, vetting that goes along before you actually go to the police academy. And a lot of folks get, you know, cut off the books after their application because they, they didn't even make it through the, the vetting process, whether that be the background check, the physical fitness test, or, or, or things of that nature. Because, as you said, many, many municipal officers look to the state police as something that is, you know, better pay, maybe more prestige, part of a larger organization. And then that's good, that's great. But for each of those that our municipal officers that become state police officers, then you've got that same glut and that, not a backlog, but the opposite of that, uh, for your municipal officers to be able to have uh, qualified officers in Millsboro, in Georgetown, in Lewis, and Rehoboth, and those sort of areas. So uh, a lot of it comes to, I, I see it in the education business. Teachers feel that they're not appreciated, uh, they're not supported, and there are people fleeing uh, the teaching profession. Just at the same time, probably to a larger scale, you have that in the police profession where you've got large scale nationwide efforts to defund the police and police are automatically bad. And they're looking, they're looking for the worst of you and all they do <clears throat> and not all the, the positive things, you know, that, that, that state troopers and police officers do on a daily basis. Yeah. So can you correct that on a local Delaware type level with even just like financial incentives, student loan forgiveness, signing bonuses, or is that, again, am I now, now I'm raising taxes and now yeah, I'm a jerk. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> potentially you could do that, but all of that comes at a cost, right. um, you know, other than, you know, as you said, maybe for the, for those that, you know, have, uh, you know, college debt and pursuing a, a state, uh, state police, uh, you know, position, you know, maybe look at, uh, alleviating some of that debt. I think, I think ultimately, Police just want to know that the community supports them. And, and by and large, I believe they actually do. I think it's just a very vocal minority that doesn't support the police. Yeah. And ultimately, I think uh, our, our police officers do a lot of that themselves through through positive community policing yeah. and, and building those connections. You know, I think of our SROs in the schools. You know, most, most of the kids don't look at them as like this, you know, mean, old, ugly uh, state trooper here. They build connections with them. You know, they, they, they look to build those relationships. And it's amazing for some of those kids that come from troubled homes and live in troubled communities, what a source of information they can be, not necessarily ratting out what's going on, but just where there might be a heads up of things, things ain't going well in my backyard. Yeah. And that just that, that little bit of information might end up to another patrol officer, maybe, you know, having an increased presence to prevent something bad from going on. Yeah, yeah it reminds me of the beat cop back in the day where it was like you had your little patrol and you knew people in a city, like you knew who the moms, who the grandmas, who the fathers were, who the kids were, you saw them in the streets playing, running around, and you had all these conversations. 
And it seems hard for troopers in Delaware to have that because every time I see troopers, they're kind of in these huge SUVs patrolling. And it's so impersonal because right. they're rolling, you know, versus you're meeting and seeing people. And I love when the SROs are in school and kids get to know them because then hopefully that translates to relationships. Because I think that's what can be missing with cops is like, they're people too. Like they just want to say, they want to get home safely and they want to make sure you're safe. And that's part of why they chose the job. And I don't know how to like help that relationship in Delaware where we're so spread out and you have to use a car for so much of it to get those relationships with the cops and the community. Yeah. I mean, you, you see what you're speaking to probably best when you go up to the state fair, there's an awful lot of state troopers. They're in uniform and they're out and they're talking to people. I mean, it's hot. It's always the hottest week of the summer, <laughs> but they're, they're building, they're building those connections. You know, I see it as a loyal UD alumnus and, and season ticket holder, uh, UD police department, you know, going around tailgates and, uh, you know, chief Pat Ogden up there stopping by and shaking hands and saying, hi, it, it becomes more personal. And you're right. And Sussex County is so, you know, um, so wide, uh, so widespread in, in, in our layout of small municipalities and a lot of unincorporated unincorporated lands in between where most of our interactions when we see troopers like you said are in those big suvs and it is very impersonal yeah it's quick because that's i i love like just for oak orchard for example it'd be awesome if there was a beat cop de dedicated to that where they could know all the players in the community but at the same time i love the randomness because you don't want it to be predictable you want it to be random right. because that's a huge deterrent is not knowing as um someone who's a criminal um, sir, anything about public safety? I seem we focus a lot on police officers, um, but anything else you'd like to touch on? No, I, I just, uh, as I said earlier, using grants and aid, uh, community transportation funds for, you know, fire protection, um, fire police, uh, EMS. Th those are things that ultimately save us money in the long run versus uh, versus having a paid fire fire company like they do in some of the, the bigger cities. You know, I think... Uh, it's like 97, 98%, something like that, of all the firefighters in the state of Delaware are volunteer. If we were to put in the infrastructure and bureaucracy and oversight to have paid volunteers, or excuse me, not paid volunteers, paid <laughs> firefighters, paid um, EMTs and ambulance service, once again, that would be a, a huge tax burden to pay. So I think we can leverage the money uh, that we have through the bond bill, through grants and aid to support EMS, uh, to support fire companies, in the end, it ends up saving us, you know, tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars for, to have that whole apparatus uh, where it wasn't a volunteer status. Now, that that being said, as I said earlier, you used to have just EMTs and part of volunteer ambulance service. Now we have a paramedic and EMS service, which I think has added value, um, you know, to the to the community where you can provide those life-saving measures, you know, at the scene before you get them to the hospital. And that's an investment that was made both from the state and also the county. So that's already been established. Looking to, you know, continue to sustain that uh, is something that I'm all about. Yeah, I, I've spoken to a couple of people on county council and I, I, the amount of money it would take to pay for the firemen versus the volunteers of the great people who do it, it would be a budget killer. It would crush it. Like you think education is a huge part of right. Delaware state budget. Like it, it would be just about maybe not as much, but it would be close. <laughs> They're like, yeah, it'd be there, crippling. There, yeah. And there are things you can do to incentivize volunteers to, to join the fire service. I mean, 
I go back to being an outdoorsman where if you're part of a volunteer fire company, you don't have to pay the fee for your surf fishing tag. So maybe we can waive other types of, of fees and things that, um, that that generally people, you know, look to uh, look to access. You know, if you volunteer your service to the to, to become an EMT or a firefighter. Yeah, I, I like that idea of perks because man, those people deserve perks. Freaking waking up whenever, rolling through their cars, and I think some of them like just love the adventure, which I love about them. Like I love those kind of people, but the fact they're giving up their time at the drop of a hat to just help others for no money putting their life on the line. Like it, it's amazing that we're able to foster that in Delaware. Um, so, cause it kind of goes with police officering the um, legalization of marijuana. I'm very interested in. So I'm at the point where I basically feel pot is like, there's no difference between pot and a microbrew. And I know it had passed the house, passed the Senate vetoed by the governor. I got very upset and I don't know the intricacies. I can kind of understand of why if we had the votes initially, why not just outvote the veto? I didn't understand that, but I get maybe it makes the governor look bad. You don't want to lose the relationship. Can you talk to me about a little bit about where you stand on legalization of marijuana in Delaware? I'm, I'm against the legalization of marijuana. I, being a high school principal, I saw what happened when it was basically decriminalized and became a civil citation, that it's much more ubiquitous, unfortunately, with our youth. Um, as far as adults are concerned, um, I've evolved that, you know, my my level of, of concern is a lot less than it used to be with adults. But unfortunately, being a, a high school principal and dealing with teenagers, I've seen a greater expansion of those who utilize marijuana and THC vape. Oh, uh, yeah. Believe it or not, you can see more of that in schools than the old fashioned, you know, the green stuff that stinks like skunk. Um, but I'm, I'm against it for that for that reason and that reason only that I think it sends a wrong message to our youth. Um, I, I'm an advocate of medical marijuana. I know two or three people that, that have their medical cards for, for various reasons, PTSD and, and uh, you know, those suffering from terminal illnesses. Um, but I'm, I'm not there with legalization yet. Um, I, I respect those who are on the other side, but uh, if, if I'm voting on it, I would, I would be a no vote. And no vote because even if the age for smoking were 21, the trickle down effect for kids having access to it. I mean, it's pretty easy. You got the older brother, you got the parents who now have it and are able to get it to you. Um, what about the counter argument for it helping cops in crime with like, if it's legal, it's no longer that big of an issue. It's not even a focus of ours. Well, I, I think when it comes to marijuana in particular, when it comes to cops and crime, it's a small part of a bigger issue with, with folks, you know, selling other illicit drugs, heroin and fentanyl. And, you know, where, where, where do you go down the slippery slope? If we, if we legalize marijuana is the next step going to be to look at other narcotics that are, you know, as magic mushrooms because they're natural. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, what, what, what effects do they have? So, um, I guess I'm old fashioned. I'm a little bit old school and conservative when it comes to this. Uh, I grew up in the 1980s when Nancy Reagan said, just say no to drugs. And that's, that's kind of where that's kind of where I am with that. And um, as I said, I respect those that have differing opinions. I don't I don't think they're evil people, um, but I'm I'm just not there. Gotcha. Yeah, I've it's been hard for me to the argument I can't get past in my head when I hear about all the and I drink all the negative effects of drinking. It just seems like literally if you're going to choose between a joint and a pint a joint is less harmful to your health than a pint of beer. 
And I, I struggle with even just thinking about why are they not the same other than the fact that just say no to drugs. This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Like that is the reason for this. When, when you look at the science, it's like if you're going to if you're going to make pot illegal, it's like you should go back to prohibition and make drinking illegal because of the DUIs, because of the negative health repercussions on your body. Yeah, I, listen, in the end, I'm all for individual rights. And um, right now, I just I, I'm not there to say uh, my fear is, you know, if all of a sudden, you know, uh, marijuana is is legalized because of the, the, the sound arguments you make in comparison with marijuana to alcohol. And there are people there are some individuals, I'm sure, that can probably responsibly use cocaine or responsibly use heroin. Yeah. Unfortunately, alcoholics are alcoholics for a reason. They can't handle it. And heroin addicts are dying of overdoses for a reason. They can't handle it. Uh, not not only to mention you've got the um, you know, fentanyl and everything else that's being laced with it. And uh, I think I don't believe you've seen in the states that have made it legal uh, for recreational use. You've not seen really a, a decrease in the black market where there are not still police officers uh, out there, you know, arresting people for selling drugs illegally, because once the state gets involved and they legalize it, and they're the ones selling it, the price goes up and you can get yeah. it cheaper from the illegal, uh, you know, the, the criminal on the street, you know, that's selling a dime bag the way they're are now so i don't know that it necessarily fixes the 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 crime problem um but many i respect the argument of some that say when you compare pot to alcohol it's it's really no worse i don't look down on folks that utilize marijuana i'm just not there to say let's make more bad stuff uh legal but uh you know i'm i i think i'm still in the majority in that um <laughs> but uh that's just how i feel it's close um, yeah I'm, I'm, here, I'm here speaking with you about about my opinions and uh and if folks want to vote for me for that great and if they don't i, I completely understand that I'm, I'm i'm just all about trying to understand all sides of the issue but i want to be honest and open with you and, and, and those who view this that i'm not there yet with legalization of marijuana the best counter i've heard to the legalization bill specific to delaware was it limited business opportunity and with the taxes and the limited business opportunity it's not like i could just open up my own side of the road pot stand and sell O'Grady joints I'll down Route 30, just like I can on a farmer's market with squash, zucchini, tomatoes. So I don't, I don't have that right. Therefore, it's going to be super expensive since we have limited market. Therefore, the criminal market is going to undercut it. So what's the point of doing that? If you're going to open it up, let people have it like, you know, you apply for microbrews and I don't think there's a limit on how many microbrews you can have. You just have a business plan and you go through the proper channels. But that wasn't the case with the legalization of pot bill or marijuana. So like, why would we do that if we're going to be a free market person? That was a great counter that I had heard. And I'm like, yeah, I can respect. Now I understand why you can be pro pot, but against the pro pot bill. Right. Well, and you just brought up something that made me scratch my head thinking of someone with a produce stand. <laughs> typically, typically those farmers, you know, grow, grow the tomatoes and grow the squash and grow the watermelon and they leave the weeds back in the uh, back in the field. Now they can just have the weed right up there with all the rest of the produce. Yeah, that instead of like lemonade stands, it's orange crush stands. That's what we go to as well. <laughs> like, I don't think that's legal. Um, so here will be the last question I ask you, sir. And this is something I definitely don't know about. And as a um, outdoorsman, I'm curious because I hear about it and it seems kind of polarizing and I'll jack up even asking, but it's the, um, 
the argument about AR-15s and clips size. And by the way, just for listeners, I gave you zero notice what I was going to ask you. Everything you have been speaking on has been completely organic and random, which I don't know how many people would have the guts to do that. So I want to thank you for that um, before we close. But help me to understand the the magazine limit clip. I'm not even sure what it's called. I just know a lot of people are pissed that now you can only have 17 rounds versus I believe it was 30 previously. Right. I mean, I'm of the opinion that you should be able to purchase anything when it comes to firearms. And I I love the argument that some folks say, well, you know, when they wrote the Constitution, you couldn't buy a cannon. Uh, Actually, you could own a cannon back then. Not a lot of folks personally owned a cannon. I'm a strong advocate of the Second Amendment. And I think ultimately the assault weapons ban in 1994 and these gun bills, 450, 451, uh, I can't remember all the numbers of the bills that came in the end of the session. Every one of them are unconstitutional. Uh, not, uh, not only against the Delaware Constitution, but in my opinion, the United States Constitution. The Delaware State Sportsman's Association, of which I'm a proud member, uh, is fighting this in court. And um, you know, ultimately, I think I, I, I quote, I often go back and quote Reagan. It's not that I think our liberal fen- friends are, are very ignorant. It's just that I think they know so much that isn't so. And they're banning, they look to ban guns that look scary. And so there's no definition of what an assault weapon is. Right now in the United States of America, you cannot buy an automatic weapon. What is an automatic weapon? It means when you pull the trigger and keep it suppressed, it fires out bullet, 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 bullet. And then folks that don't know guns say, well, we need to ban semi-automatic weapons. I've got several shotguns that are semi-automatic weapons. What is a semi-automatic weapon? You pull the trigger and a projectile comes out the other end. You pull it again and it goes the same. So you've got a shotgun that's, you know, a a pump shotgun, not semi-automatic, but you've got an quote-unquote automatic shotgun where it has the mechanism to eject the shell and load the next one. It's semi-automatic. A pistol that's, you know, is a semi-automatic weapon. And what difference does it make if there's a 17-round clip, an 18-round clip, a 30-round clip, or a 50-round clip? Ultimately, I can tell you this much. If I've got someone, an evildoer coming into my house looking to do harm to me or my family or anything else, and they're armed, I want to make sure that I can out-weaponize them. I want to have as many bullets as possible because if it's in the middle of the night and I'm asleep, I'm probably not going to be on my A-game. But if someone comes in looking to do harm, I want to be able to uh, overwhelm them with my response and, and my own home protection. Now, do I need... 50 rounds to go out deer hunting? I sure as heck hope not. I hope one round, one kill. That's what I'm looking for <laughs> as a as a hunter. But uh, I just think that things are so, so misguided when it comes to these gun bills. They're not going to save lives. All they're going to do is end up restricting, um, restricting the rights, our Second Amendment rights, uh, for those who lawfully own weapons. The evildoers and the criminals out there aren't getting their guns from Ron Hagen and uh, Best Shot DE. They're getting them on the street that was sold from another drug deal gone bad three or four times ago, and that gun's been recycled three or four times. They're not paying attention to the gun laws. So all these extra gun laws make make people feel good, but they don't actually solve the problem. So that's something I'm passionate about. I I can hear it. um, I'm curious then for the mass shooting, because that's kind of the counter, right? And like when I went with COVID, it was like the the ace up your sleeve or the trump card was like, oh, so you want my grandmother to die. 
And it was like, no, obviously I don't want your grandmother to die, but I don't know about this whole vaccine and Max mandate and the, all these closures. Like it was always, but you want my grandmother to die. And like, what do you say to that? Right? So it makes people feel like they're winning an argument. So the counter to the, the assault ban and to all this limiting of the second amendment is, oh, so then you're just fine with mass shootings. Oh, so you want these crazy people who want to do harm to have unlimited amount of clips and bullets and size to induce harm. Well, I think it comes down to how you, how we define a mass shooting at one point in time. I don't know what the magic number is. I think it's three or more or four or more. The great majority of quote unquote mass shootings are committed with, uh, you know, you know, gang related criminal activity with pistols and they're not done with long guns and these scary looking assault weapons. So, so very, very few of these shootings are done with, um, you know, these AR-15 types or a 223 or, or whatever the case is, whatever caliber and whatever long gun you're looking at that looks, looks scary. looks like something the military would use. Most of them are done, you know, with pistols. Yeah. As you said, right now, the limit, uh, in this unconstitutional bill is 17 rounds per clip. Uh, by my math, you can kill 17 people with that. That's considered a mass shooting. So, you know, I, I think we're focused on the wrong thing. We're focused on not, we should be focused on prosecuting the criminals with gun crimes. Do you happen to know in the last two years, uh, not, not 2022, 2021 and 2020, I think it was like 80% and then 82% of gun crimes in the state of Delaware were not prosecuted. They were just waived. But yet we're going to put on, we're going we're gonna to add a bunch of additional bills to make it illegal for law-abiding citizens and Second Amendment supporters like myself to own what was a legal firearm. But we're not prosecuting over 80% of those who actually commit crimes with guns. Four that is absolutely ridiculous. It, so is it using the weapon or using a gun during the crime or just possession of a gun while a crime Both. is occurring? Possession of possession of a weapon during the commission of a felony, utilizing the weapon during the commission of a felony, like an armed robbery, yeah, discharging, um, discharging the weapon, shooting someone. Four um, out of five, not. Do, yes, do, you, do you have a Do you have a why for that? Is it do they plead down do. and take I away do. the charges? The answer to that is two words. Kathleen Jennings, our attorney general, she is not prosecuting the criminals. And there are people fleeing the attorney general's office because they don't want to work there because they're not actually upholding the constitution and prosecuting the criminals. And it's undercutting and kneecapping the state troopers. We spoke public safety earlier. I'm not running for attorney general. I'm a big supporter of Julianne Murray, but Kathleen Jennings needs to do her job and she needs to prosecute the criminals. That seems so that seems like what we were talking about with standardized testing of, Hey, we're going to make this measurement that you have zero individual accountability for doing well on. So if the right. individual accountability for gun safety is about, if I get caught with a gun, I am S-O-L in court, exactly. but you're letting four out of five, how are people not gonna talk with other people and let them know it ain't that, just like, dude, it ain't that serious if you get caught with half an ounce of pot, you just, or whatever, like 40 grams, like they go through the system, they learn and they disseminate that information. I am, I can't believe that four out of five gun charges would not be prosecuted yet. They would try to limit your ability to, to me, if I go with, if I want a 30 round clip, I want to go have some fun and like right. shoot some stuff in a responsible manner. Cause it is fun. I was in the military, dude, it's kind of fun to set up targets and see what you can hit. Like it's, it's, it's a good to me, decent way to spend a Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. Like I would love that. But why would you limit the clip but not prosecute the possession, especially if it's during a crime where safety, like it would be way more of a safety issue. 
you're committing a crime with a weapon. Yeah, I mean, part of one of these bills actually said anyone under the age of 21, you know, can't, you know, possess or utilize a firearm without the supervision of an adult. I've got a 17-year-old nephew getting ready to start his senior year at Sussex Central. He's been hunting and trapping on his own since he was 13 or 14, uh, particularly when you go out trapping, uh, you know, for, you know, muskrats, raccoons, whatever the case is. When you go to check the traps, you need to have a sidearm so you can uh, dispatch the varmint, so to speak, once you uh, once you go get it. Been doing this since he was 13 or 14. Now, he's going to be turning 18 this year. He's already uh, uh, signed up for the Marine Corps. He's a police. He's going out next summer. So as an 18 or a 19 or a 20-year-old, even though he's going to be trained on how to use a weapon in the United States Marine Corps, he's not going to be able to hunt on his own without without dad being uh, in the blind with him or whatever the case is absolute ridiculousness yeah but at the same time old joe schmo the thug who dropped out of school three or four years ago and has already had three or four armed robberies hasn't been prosecuted with a gun crime yet that is the definition of ridiculousness and that's exactly why i'm running to try to bring some common sense yeah i i i didn't understand the 21 year old i understood it from the aspect of it seemed like a lot of school shootings younger individuals that maybe if they get to 21, the connection to the school for whatever reason might be lessened or weaker. So maybe they're not more inclined to go back to a school to shoot it up. But I can't think of if you can enlist in the military at 18 and I believe basic training is still nine weeks. You leave nine weeks. When I went, it was a full week of being with an M16. You clean it, you put it together, you go out on the range, you're hitting things 300 yards out. You know, like it's, 300 meters. And it's like, but now you come back and after being trained by the government, you're not able to go deer hunting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, that's, that's why the Delaware state sportsman's association has my 100% support, uh, not only personal support, but financial support in, uh, in fighting these bills. Yeah. So then what about the school shooting argument of the mass shooting in a school where they have all these extra clips? We want them to have less bullets to create more time to take out the perpetrator. I don't think that solves the problem. I tell you what I think goes a long way into solving the problem is hardening, hardening our targets. The Indian River School District, I'm proud to say, was, I believe, the first to start a constable program, 100 percent locally funded. No state funding for this, something I would advocate for is providing state funding uh, statewide for this. But we have a retired uh, law enforcement officer in every single school armed each and every day. Uh, and that's augmented by our school resource officers, which are already there through Delaware State Police or municipal police. And in our larger schools like mine, we have multiple constables uh, that is a deterrent for an evildoer to come in because they know there's a good guy with a gun there. I know one of the debates going back and forth is, well, what about teachers that might have a, you know, a concealed carry permit? Yeah. I, I'm not 100% sold on that, but I do know that constables who have had a life of service as a police officer uh, in public safety, trained with their firearm, creates that deterrence for an evildoer and will highly uh, increase the response time should uh, a critical incident occur. And I think it's a prevention measure. I also think investments in things like bulletproof glass in your in your main entrance areas and how you can build a school having 
we're going through the process of building a new Sussex Central. We're looking at these things, how, how the entry of every door, you know, down a hallway, is it is it recessed in case there was, you know, something like a, a bomb or a bomb threat and how the blast radius goes. We actually look at these things in building doors to hardening, or excuse me, building schools and hardening our targets uh, to make sure that there's locking mechanisms within doors. If, if things happen immediately that we could secure an area and, and go through the, the run, hide, fight model. I think all of these issues with training and funding and having a deterrence are a heck of a lot more important and more impactful than some bill that says, oh, I'm going to ban this gun, yet a criminal or a deranged person can go out and acquire one illegally, uh, as simple as they can go out and get, you know, a dime bag of marijuana. I mean, even to, to your point of mass shooting, so then we're okay with 17 shots being fired in a school, not 18. Right. For exactly. right, like that to me, when you, when you kind of frame it like that, the amount of pain and suffering that can be inflicted with seventeen shots, you might as well go down to like a single load musket style, where it's like thirty seconds between fires, so that you can try to save. If that's the logic you're trying to apply to it, um, yeah, there was, and I'm way out of my steez on this too. Wasn't there one? The counter argument to the constable is. There was one in Florida that was hiding during a shooting or something. Do you remember this video? Or maybe we shouldn't even talk about it because I don't remember. Yeah, it. I'm not. I'm not 100 uh, percent. Yeah, but I, I look at the majority of those school shootings, and I think very rarely was there a person on site certified to take out this target. And it makes me wonder right. why do elementary schools get chosen? Or I know Columbine was a high school, but it's like those are easy targets for those kids. The path of least resistance for those kids and you see an individual there. And if you go through the school knowing there's an individual there with a weapon, right. you you would most I would think you would most likely pick somewhere else or have to think twice or maybe even have to plan harder, which then allows you to be exposed because you're researching and trying to find connections of how to deal with that. And then it's almost like counterterrorism at that point where it's like, oh, you've been flagged because you're looking at ways to take out a constable. Yeah, well, and I know uh, our school resource officers, our constables, our school administrators um, are aware of the alert training and things that uh, you see what happened in Uvalde, Texas. That was that was an old model that actually used to be, you know, the case where if there was something going on, you waited for the team to arrive and then you respond. And it's what, 87 some minutes. Now it's the alert model. Whoever, whoever you, you hear, you hear gunfire, you go towards the danger. And that's what our constables and our SROs are trained to do. And I think that it's peace of mind for me as someone who works in a school when these seeing these things going on in the news that um, should God forbid anything like that happen, that we got the people to mitigate the harm that can be done because they can respond even in a very large school within seconds rather than waiting for minutes. Uh, I think the national response time is somewhere along the lines of eight minutes. There's an awful lot bad that can go on in eight minutes, even if you had a half a dozen guns with 17 round clips, because let's, let's, let's not forget you now, now if we're going to make a law that says you can't have a gun with more than 17 rounds. And let's just say that for some odd reason, someone that's going to be a mass murderer is worried about following the law is now going to go by, you know, four or five or six of these guns rather than, you know, one gun that can have more clips where or, or more rounds within a clip, which just once yeah. again, brings me back to the ridiculousness of these, uh, of these bills that were passed by, many of our, our liberal friends, um, particularly from uh, Newcastle County. And that's what I'm going to go up there and hopefully fight against. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen the energy and effort be put into the men earlier intervening of mental health services with counselors yeah. within a school. I know 
in our middle school, 700 kids, we finally got a full-time counselor two years ago, or maybe even three before COVID. And then we finally got a full-time school psych, but the ratio is still, that's one person to like every 150, 200 kids. And you're like, dude, like it, it put your energy into early intervention, mental health services yep. that are free yep. and accessible to the people who need it. That when teachers identify or if families have concerns, they can get a resource to help their kid. And let's avoid the whole thing in totality. That, that yeah, would be the ideal. And that, that's a very good point. And there needs to be a balance because I'm a big civil libertarian as well, as far as privacy and those sort of things. But there needs to be a balance that when there are red flags and there are issues uh, with students or even young adults um, that, uh, that are of a concern that they may be a danger to themselves or others, that there needs to be some information sharing with other resources yeah. while at the same time respecting a person's uh, you know, privacy and individual rights. Um, because I think that's, that's another big gap when you see, and maybe it's not just the schools, when you see some of these, you know, mass shooters and things, they post stuff publicly on Facebook, on Twitter. And where's the responsibility of those, those friends, those neighbors, those that have some sort of social connection to report these things that, Hey, this is a concern to me. And I don't want to criminalize behavior of non-reporting or things like that. When people say crazy things, you know, maybe. Maybe someone, you know, posted something when they were drunk or high or something like that. But when there's an ongoing pattern of red flags, there needs to be information sharing. But I'm also cognizant of the fact as a as someone who's big on individual liberties that we, we don't need we need to tread lightly when we do it. But we also need to be able to track track this to prevent some of these uh, uh, horrific things from taking place. It's as simple as see something, say something. And if right. people know where to say it too, like I don't know how many people who aren't in a school would even know how to or where to go. Like what, what website would they go to to tell someone, hey, I noticed my neighbor's always out and like taking all these selfies with these assault weapons. And like, or you know, now his mom's telling me that all he does is spew hate speech online. And then no. you're starting to put things together. You're like, well, okay, let's let's have someone check in on that person, yeah. which is like that balance. But to me, see, to me, this is the issue that I don't like is that's not as sexy as a gun assault ban clip or a magazine clip. That's a great headline. But expanded mental health in order to prevent school shootings is not a sexy headline and it's not polarizing. But you know what it is? And it's what I think I, I really like about you, Dr. Layfield, is it's very practical. It's very yep. problem solution oriented and it's impactful to where it needs to be. The individuals on the ground level as early as possible. Like I love that a lot of your thoughts keep going back to just practical applications to help. That's, that's what I've made a career of. It's kind of how I was you know, raised by my parents, myself and my brothers. Uh, you know, it really comes down to about uh, ultimately individual accountability. And those that may not want to be accountable, uh, providing them the resources to uh, to look at themselves in the mirror and figure out what they can do to pull up their, their themselves by the bootstraps. Um, so that's 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 pretty much who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm all about I'm all about looking at as an in, uh, as a person as an individual, trying to help them as an individual. I, I hate. I hate that society has gone down the road of trying to put people into groups. Are you black or are you white? Are you gay or are you straight? Are you in this group or that group? And if you're in this group, you you, you can't like the people over here in this group. And if you're in this group, you have to align with the people that are in this group over here. I don't ever want to look at people in groups. I want to look at them as uh, individuals. Today, uh, today's the 28th of August. Um, 
59 years ago today, it was Dr. Martin Luther King that said he wanted to live in a world where his four children were judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. And um, that's that's how I judge each and every person I meet each and every day. That's a, unless you have a, a closing statement, I think that's a beautiful closing right there, sir. Well, I agree. <laughs> Love it. Dr. Leefield, thank you for giving up so much of your time. It's over two hours. And again, by the way, just the on a Sunday to give up two hours with literally, and you didn't even ask for, hey, what questions are you going to ask me about? You were just like completely, absolutely, let's figure out a time. And it was, you're very responsive, clearly articulate, well-versed at thinking on the fly. And um, I don't, I just, I like the fact that you're not also scared to like take a stance on things which I think is yeah. important when you're voting for someone. Cause the ultimately you just want to know, how are you going to represent me in different ways? And I, I love the fact that you're able, that you're not worried about taking stances, but also being open to listening and thinking about the other side. I, I just really appreciate that from you. Well, thank you. It's a, it was a, a good way to spend a couple hours of time in between church and uh, going out and hitting the, uh, hitting the tee box at the golf course. Sundays is my only day where I, I don't do any uh, campaign door knocking. I, I respect Sunday as a day of rest. Uh, so I'm getting ready to go out and play a little golf and enjoy my Sunday, then uh, roll my sleeves up and get back after it tomorrow. Uh, Monday mornings are my favorite time of the week. Uh, I, I enjoy the work. I enjoy the grind. <laughs> it is funny when like you look forward to Mondays. You know, it seem like an outside. Like I get energized by Mondays because I really enjoy just being around kids and trying to help their day be better. I don't know what it is, but it, it's a funny feel. You feel like a albatross like you're excited for sunday nights i'm like yeah dude go to bed wake up make a purpose make a difference it's it's nice well best of luck to you this uh upcoming school year yeah thank you sir and uh good luck on and again it's september 13th that the primary will be um if you in, if you've gotten to know dr bradley layfield and um are feeling him please vote for him thank you all right sir have a good one you too thanks to andre psyche for supporting the getting to know you pod Search up Andre Psyche on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know today's guest or just want to support this upstart podcast, go to our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, your donation will help with all the costs associated with producing the Getting to Know You pod. Don't forget the three free ways to support the pod. One, subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, three, go to Apple, write a review. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. If you're interested, just message us. See you.